You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. It's going. It is going. Is it going on your end? Yeah, it looks nice when it like kind of like has a fun recording. This is nicer than yeah. when I had it. I was on the OG one. Yeah. Well, Kirk. Good to see you. Welcome back. I don't have a Kirk act. I don't have a Kirk impression. What's do you have one? Not not as an opener. Not as an no. Opener. Do you have like a couple? Of ah, I was running. I ran like a fifteen mile run. I averaged five fifty, and I almost pooped my pants twice during <laughs> it. And no, I don't know. I don't have a Kirk. What are some of the weird words? Someone said he says groin funny. Growin. Growin. <laughs> Is that G R O dash I N? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what else. That's all I really got for him. I mean, subsequent. Subsequent? It's a subsequent. Oh, is it a subsequent? Yeah, subsequent. <laughs> I thought that was a word I just like hadn't I don't that's not in the, the vernacular for me, but subsequent. Okay. I really like the word I said it earlier, circuitous, but I liked saying circuitous. I thought it sounded cooler. And I accidentally said it on a broadcast one time. Like you say it in jest and it's In jest I'll say circuitous instead of circuitous. And then during a broadcast, I said Serquitius oh, and immediately thought, like, not a oh, podcast, man. like on a no, race? no, on a broadcast. Oh. <laughs> That's funny. It, it was years ago. Might have even been NBC. I don't know. Oh, my God. But I, I felt like an idiot. I'll, I'll do that with, uh, I just think it's funny to say irregardless. It, I, I just like, oh, yeah. liked it. But if you don't, it's hard to say that jokingly to someone who wouldn't think you're joking because that's because it's so commonplace. People just say that. Yeah. And then you're, then you're lumped into that, that, you're immediately put into like that bucket of people to someone else. Like, oh, that's yeah. a person that says irregardless. It's like flammable, inflammable. I think I, I think I just stay away from that one. I think they're the same thing. Can you say them interchangeably? Well, inflammable, you would think means you can't start it on fire, but it means you can inflame it. Oh. <laughs> inflammable <laughs> means it's flammable. All right. So I think they're they're the exact same definition. You don't want to guess wrong. Like, oh, this is inflammable. Yeah, we're good. I'm gonna use like the same paragraph and really flex on somebody. See what, see how confused they can get. Definitely sure. This is pretty. Like, if you don't, ha- you weren't trying to do a Kirk impression there, but this is pretty on brand for an intro for us. Nice. How long do you guys go? Ten? Twenty? That's right. You don't ever listen to us. Not a lot. Very rare. Which I appreciate. Thank you. <laughs> because I always catch flack. Matt Davis loves giving me flack that I don't listen to any podcasts in the industry. I listen when someone sends me something because they think I really need to hear it. And then I read the description and then I decide. And it's like a <laughs> a, a one to 10 ratio of me deciding, yeah, I definitely should. Or when I see something. Well, you want to hear about yourself? Did you listen when, uh, we're, when you're on podcasts, other people's podcasts? Rarely. The only one I listened back was the last time I was on Matt's and there was a lot of, I got a lot of angry messages about me. Mm. And then a lot of angry messages about Matt. It was very polarizing. And so I went back and re-listened to try to hear who was right. That was a good, that, that should, if there was a podcast of the year, I think that would be definitely nominated. Like one podcast episode, you know how to do like mini series or whatever. Yeah. I think it'd be up there. That and the mod episode, you'd be in, you'd be in both of them for sure. I wonder how many people would, would enter mod into that, onto the ballot as a write-in. That's early race brain. So people might have forgotten that it was actually something that happened. So I got four types of messages after that 
that podcast, and they were almost even. Yeah, the first was what you said. That was one of the best podcasts I've listened to this year. Second one was that was the dumbest thing I've ever listened to. That could have been over in ten minutes, and I eventually I had to turn it off. You guys were just infuriating to listen to. I, like, it was terrible. Why would you ever do that? The third was Matt's an idiot, and the fourth was you're an idiot. Hmm. And they were dead even across. I've never had so many different polarizing reactions from one thing I've done. It was it was good because it was definitely compelling to listen to. It was a, it was a a version of you that we don't get. No. And with going back and forth with someone like Matt, who that's a version that we get of him a lot, and just someone actually like pushing back on him. So it was very it was very interesting from that perspective. But yes, the conversation itself fairly frivolous. And it could have could have probably yeah. ended in how long do you think it went? Twenty minutes? Twenty five minutes? The podcast itself was an hour, but there was like thirty minutes of good conversation, and there was like twenty of basically yeah. bickering, just headbutting, yeah, just headbutting. And yeah, at, at a point, you were talking about different things. I was like, there, I, I don't think that they're on the same path. No, I, and the, and again, I got messages about that specific thing. Some people were like. I loved how calm you stayed and you just kept answering with logic. And then I got messages being like, why were you so combative? You weren't listening to a thing he was saying. So even in like that one little section, people heard the exact opposite. So I don't know. I was, I, he caught me in a certain mood that day where I, I generally don't have any desire to make waves. It's like, all right, whatever, let's just move on. And, uh, I just decided I wasn't going to, <laughs> to, to, to give an inch. I just said, I'm going to stand here as long as we need to, and let's see what happens out of it. Do you have like a heavy training load that day or something? Or just hear some bad news, something just like leaked in. You're like, you know what? I wasn't even in a bad mood. I was just feeling stubborn. There we go. That's, is that a feeling that comes across or is that just like a personality <laughs> like attribute? Is, is that something that you can? I'm naturally very, very stubborn and I naturally have a negative reaction to, uh, I would say strong leadership or aggress like aggressive natures of people around me. If I don't respect them, I'm very combative. Mm. I've learned to keep that under control, but I used to have a hard time not talking back mm. like to my parents or uh, at a certain age, probably never to teachers, but maybe to some coaches that I didn't respect. I, I had a bit of a Gave him some lip. So I got that under control over the years, but I'm not bothered by arguments that much. I'm capable of like not being upset and arguing at the same time, which is a Philly guy you get, mm. I'm sure. <laughs> so I don't do it often because most people find it distasteful or very uncomfortable. But Matt doesn't mind arguing. And so that day I just let a little piece out. Yeah, Matt. Matt's good with it. He would like, he would, I'm sure he loved that podcast because he wants to have it love language. Like that. Yeah, seriously. Where some people, like I've been known to do devil's advocate stuff and people fucking hate that. People are yeah, really do. not interested in that. And if I'm just trying to like stress an idea or just like pick it, pick at it a little bit and just to help myself understand, I will tend to go the other way just to see if I can learn something. People don't like it though. People don't want anything to do with that. No. And I should stress that growing up, and now I have an issue with people I don't respect being aggressive leaders, but I wasn't saying I don't respect Matt. That's not, no, can't untake. Someone will hear, someone will have heard that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even if I meant it, that's not what I was saying. Okay. That's what I heard. Okay. I'm going to say. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is on brand. This is off course right away from the beginning. Great. Glad I can fill in. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to do a little show and tell here. This weekend I was looking for a specific workout in a book. I'd read it a long time ago and I was curious and it actually wasn't even an OCR workout. 
It was in this. It wasn't a running workout. It was in this book right here, the Triathletes Training Bible. Joel, Joel Friel. Yeah, Joel Friel. I got this one. I don't know if you have that book. I got this one. It was my first. Uh, I will call it OCR book I ever read. For you'll you'll say triathlon books would be kind of be lumped into that. Yeah, it's my first compromise running book I ever read. Okay. Early on into OCR, I realized I'm still trying to jam this track and field peg into a something other hole, and it's. I don't know what else you would do here, but this isn't enough. I tried training like cross country. It wasn't enough. And Mm -hmm. brick workouts were the only thing I'd ever heard of that were what we would later come to term compromised in nature. So I read that baby and I was looking for a workout in there. And then I found all my books I used to read. And I thought, I haven't read these in a long time. It's probably been the most time I've spent without revisiting some aspects of my book. So I got all my running books out, Hmm. stacked them up. I'm thinking your shoe wall, I'm going to have a shelf right back here. I'm going to put my running books right back there just so people know that I can read. But I do have the Joel Friel one. I started reading it recently because I've gone into different domains, right? I've read, I've read books on like swimming, on, on cycling. On, mm-hmm. I've, I've tried to read stuff on CrossFit. No, no good. Nothing good available yet. It's like us. It is like us. Anyone who's writing it doesn't have a big enough body of work yet. They've jumped the gun. To be like indisputable. They've jumped the gun. Yeah. Even Matt Fraser's book was very anecdotal and it seemed like he needed mm-hmm. to be have like a decade longer experience with actual coaching because mostly it was like, oh, and then I just do like this AMRAP and then I do like some EMOMs. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. this is not what I was really hoping for. Here's what I've done fantastic yes. here's what to do not quite not, there yet. not there not even close but with the joel Friel one it started off so much like my, my issue with most of these running books or endurance books in general is that there's a lot of filler on both ends that mm-hmm. are, are unnecessary for me and that's called the training bible right so he's covering all of it so yeah that that it was a little bit hard for me to sift through it so i don't have a great recollection of it i actually lump that book together with this one daniel's running formula daniel's Mm. classic yeah so both of those and you're right like the classic thing to do when you write a coaching book is i don't know if it's out of ego or out of fear but you spend the first hundred pages convincing everyone or impressing everyone with how much science you have inside of your head Mm -hmm. Telling everyone what a lactate threshold is, mm. telling everyone what aerobic threshold right. is, going through and making it's like the first hundred pages are like exercise 101. And then you get into, so how do I utilize these things and what I do? But both of those, I had a different experience from you because I, these were the first two books I read. Mm-hmm. So I needed it. Mm-hmm. I was coming off of high school and then college and trying to be a coach myself. I was coaching at the high school level and I didn't know any of those things. You would think after 15 years of running already or 10 years of running, people would have taught you that, but none of my coaches ever used any of those terms. So I actually appreciated it. I spent a ton of time in there and I had no cards writing down definitions. I needed all that information. And I guess that's why they do it, right? Is to assuming that you don't have any previous education on it or have read any books. Because Daniel's was the first one that I've read, I think. I would think that that would be the first real training one. Yeah. I had the Brad Hudson book real early. It mm. came out a long time ago, but same thing, right? Like you're, it's just under the assumption that I didn't read that one. Um, I think that was back when he was coaching Dathan. So he was, he was a big, and he had a couple other, was that before Hanson Brooks? Before that, that I read one of those ones too. Um, that's not actually written by the Hansons. It's the training program one, like the American right. training one. 
the Brad Hudson, it's, it's pretty, st- I mean, it's not as into the science as Daniel's. It's more anecdotal, but still does the whole thing. Like, here's what all right. of this stuff means. And it's definitely helpful and it can be helpful to revisit it too. It took, it probably took, I had to comb. It takes me a while to learn. So for me to really comb through all of those things to really get the concepts down, it took me a couple of times through and like revisiting it mm-hmm. as well. So it can be helpful. Initially, I found it just like taking a physiology class or an anatomy class where there's too many similar terms. Mm. And it's like, just where is this located? Which one is this? <laughs> and does it make what sense? What does it do? And I'm not sure. There's Yeah. So what's proximal and distal? And medial and lateral. Ah, they all start to. What's extension and flexion? Doesn't make yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try to get those like little like mental cues, like like uh, doors of plantar flexions, like planting your foot into the ground, like mm-hmm. stuff like that. And like you're just like then it's just memorization. So like, what, what does that even do? Yeah. Are we gonna do that a little bit in this? Are we gonna get into? Because uh, there are some terms that are almost the same when these conversations that we're gonna be talking about. Like uh, yeah, there are like lactic threshold and. Um, uh, anaerobic threshold, yes. ventilatory threshold too. And they all, they all have different definitions, but in practice, they're all kind of the same. Yeah. And in even like anaerobic threshold and lactate threshold have slightly different definitions, but in a lab, they're the same. They basically will say like Steve Magnus's book is another one I have. That's a good one. At this point, and he's considered like a scientific mind right now, more, almost more scientist than coach in some people's minds. Hmm. That's not necessarily my words, but... And he said, they're essentially the same thing. They're basically the same. And it's almost like you test for them differently, but they're the same point, essentially. That's what it is. It's one is like a blood test for the actual lactate that's in your body. And the other one is when you start to change from running mostly on fats to mostly on carbohydrates. But that line yeah. ends up being in terms of like what your effort is, it's, it's about the same, right? So like if people start arguing about that, they just read a couple of books and they're like stuck. Yeah. And ventilatory threshold two and one, that's aerobic threshold and anaerobic threshold. And it's based off gaseous exchange essentially, but it's the same thing, you know? Yeah. So we could be without half of the tests and probably still kind of know the same thing. And I'm sure there's going to be tests that we're going to, that's a question. What kind of tests do you think that could be done in labs that we haven't done yet that will be able to show us something new or probably not even like, I don't think there's a lot more to know in terms of what training is going to do for us. I think there's, everybody's been testing it so often that like the response that you get is the response that you get, but like what it's going to, how it shows up in a lab test that we haven't figured out yet. Right. What do you think? Yeah. I think that we have sports that are kind of done in a vacuum now. I would say cycling. Mm-hmm. It's getting to be a sport that's kind of done in a vacuum. You have power meters, you have wind tunnel testing, you have everything you can do to guarantee that someone will or won't be good outside of bike handling by the time they even step foot on a course. Mm-hmm. You could train entirely in a lab and be good. And if you look back at Lance Armstrong, you had Ferrari. He was designing workouts. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ferrari was designing workouts at times. Like He is a dope doping expert in a inner workings of the body, a chemical expert. And he was also designing workouts that Lance would do in training camps because all he was trying to do is incite chemical change inside the body. Get a a response. Black and white, real simple. So I think that running is, is still a few deviations to the left of that. 
where we're starting to get there with stride pods and we're starting to get right, there with say the power. Yeah. With, with blood lactate strips, you know, tests of that sort starting to actually make it black and white, but we are still the only endurance sport that you fight gravity the way we fight it mm-hmm. and impact the ground the way we impact it. And every one of those little things kills the black and white nature of it. Like the ideal form and the ideal foot strike rowing, biking, skiing. They have little variations, but running has huge variations. Yeah. It would take it like the, the human error part. It's almost yes. going to be, unless there is like a machine that is built that you can like kind of be in that will mm-hmm. like run for you kind of, or ways to kind of mechanically change or to teach like how to fire certain ways that to get you optimal or what is considered optimal but that isn't something that I'll think is is even close to being. So it's always going to be the human error of how you're striding, yeah. stride length, this and that, like body composition. All these things are going to play a factor as long for as long as we're running on ground <laughs> until that changes. Yeah. And like one small example of this would be cadence. Mm-hmm. So in rowing or in cycling, it's pretty much proven that as you ramp up your cadence, you can go faster. Mm-hmm. And it only the only question mark there is your physical ability with your endurance and your speed and your stamina to tolerate that cadence increase. Like as a pro cyclist, the thing they do better than amateur cyclists outside of being better is they can just keep a higher cadence all day. They can keep a higher cadence longer. With the same power with right? Like Yeah. Same power. And it costs them less and they get efficient at it. Where if you and I went out and tried to spin at the RPMs that they're spinning, it would exhaust us. And running's not the same way, mm-hmm. where it's not a guarantee of getting faster because there's a mechanical piece to your body. Like if you want to spin faster, it doesn't change the fact that your foot is glued to the pedal. Mm-hmm. It's not coming off no matter how you spin. But if you try to run faster, your foot plant changes and everything changes and your hip angle can really fight that or be less efficient with that foot strike and with that cadence. And so like you said, the human error part, there's just more moving pieces to something like cycling, which is real straightforward. Spend a higher time spending at higher cadence and drive your wattage up on that. And you're going to be better Mm -hmm. running. You might do that and get slower, or you might get a stress fracture. For sure. The power, the power changes, right? can't, the consistency of the power just won't be there. Yeah. You see minimal, like if you watch the tour de France and you look at all the best people, you're going to see millimeters in difference of how they angle their pedals. And where their knees splay out or don't splay out, you're going to see millimeters to centimeters of difference. If you watch the Olympic or world championship marathon, you're going to see some people springing off their toes and some people foot striking or heel striking. And some people with their hands barely ever coming forwards past their midline. And some people who elbows never drive backwards past their midline and they're all good. So does that mean we're unoptimized or that there's way too many variables to ever optimize maybe someday there will be a method to do it and and we'll yeah. look back on these times sorry I got, we have like a hundred dogs here right now and one is not <laughs> not having somebody walking by and um so yeah unless there is we'll look back and these will be like the stone ages of running but the running's been around for longer than all of these other competitive events have been mm-hmm. so back to your original question is what tests are we are we maybe going to see or what are we missing? I agree with you on both sides that we kind of know all we need to know from a big, you know, 20,000 foot view, 
but we are also continually finding that we're testing for the wrong things. So two examples of that might be that uh, VO2 max. For years, VO2 max was the holy grail. What's your VO2 max number? How can you raise it up? If you've raised it up, you're guaranteed to be better. And then we're going to work at VO2 max velocity. Mm -hmm. We're going to work at the pace that you're working at when you arrive at VO2 max. And people finally started to question it. Like, what does that even matter? And what they found out is that it doesn't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. All great runners have a pretty decent VO2 max. But having a pretty decent or great VO2 max will not guarantee you're going to be a great runner. So it's correlation, not causation. But focusing on it as causation led people astray for decades. I like to think of that with um, like in other sports, right? Like if you are 6'5 and have a 7'2 wingspan, chances of you being good at basketball are higher. That's like having a high mm -hmm. VO2 max. But if you don't put in the work and, the, and develop yourself into a basketball player, it doesn't mean you're going to be good at it. Right. It's just like a, basically right. the inherent ability to absorb oxygen is higher than maybe some others. And it's trainable to a certain extent, but yeah. it's not, it's not the end all. Have you ever done a test? No, no. Well, I did one and it was misdone. It was in college when we were, uh, helping out the human health and performance grad students doing their projects and your score wasn't very good. So you're like, that could have been right. I don't even think they were changing things like height and weight in between people's tests and their uh, <laughs> which that matters. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing with this too, right? Like if you have a higher amount of muscle mass, like the chances mm -hmm. of you being able to absorb more oxygen through, like you're going to need more. So you probably will be able to do that, but you're not probably not going to, that's not always going to necessarily make you a faster runner, right? There's, there's variables in it. Yeah. And, and even little things like testing efficiency, I mean, it's famous at this point, but when the Breaking 2 project with Nike, who has the biggest testing and R&D department in any sport in the world, as far as I know, they tested all the top half marathoner and marathoners in that, uh, uh, what's his name? Zidane, Sirze Zidane or whatever. Mm -hmm. The half marathon record holder. It was. Oh, he okay. lost it now, but he was like a 57 something um, to Desi. He had the highest efficiency by far. He was the most efficient runner they'd ever tested. And he's never had a good marathon hmm. ever. I, 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 he's may, maybe finished one. He's the half marathon or was the half marathon record holder for almost a decade and did not put up a world-class marathon ever. DNF'd most of them or fell apart because he was so hyper-efficient that the moment he wasn't, his stride couldn't handle it. Interesting. Like he was a, he could play one tune and that, that was an incredible tune. But the moment he had to do something else, like he was done. When they did those tests, were they testing – they probably weren't testing efficiency 90 minutes into a training session, right? Probably not. Yeah. Um, and efficiency in general, like how you would describe it is just it's – it's, it, it's mechanical, but how that they will then test things like uh, amount of calories burned or like a respiratory – or like the ventilation mm -hmm. rate and things like that, right? So it's like it's mechanical, yeah. but how that then changes like – fatigue factors, I guess, kind of. Yeah. And, and there's that unknown quality of being able to just handle stuff that happens. So you look at like MMA a lot or boxers, you have really pretty crisp, pristine strikers and they're so much faster than their opponent. And they're just picking them apart, picking them apart. And then they get caught with something and now they're, 
they're a little hesitant, mm-hmm. and now they won't throw as clean, and they're not as cocky anymore. And then suddenly, by the third round, they're getting wore down, and now they're in a street fight, and they can't translate that clean, crisp, in-and-out fighting into a like a phone booth brawl. Mm-hmm. Where the other side wouldn't have tested off the chart at anything, but if they can make it to round three or four, they're going to take you out. Hmm. And like that's an untestable quality currently, but in the future, and the same thing for for marathoning. In the future, can you test for that? Who's got the dog in them that ninety minutes in is willing to bite down and say, "I don't care that I have diarrhea. I don't care that I have a side stitch. I don't care that I missed my bottle at the last feed station. I'm just gonna be a dog here." What is that? How do you test that? So I think some more of those internal fortitude tests will be big. Because that sounds more – because there's got to be something physiological behind that. Like that striking example that you gave is a good one. Like if it's just training a specific adaptation that is allowing you to move in maybe a manner that would be slightly less efficient in like that really short um, tested Mm -hmm. piece, maybe that's more efficient over the course of – in the striking example, 15 minutes or in the half marathon example, 90 minutes, right? Like over the course of 10, 20, 30, whatever it is, that's in the more efficient way. But what does that mean drawn out? And those type of studies are hard to do (laughs) because they're really demand. They're really demanding. They are. People need to sign up for these things. And we start to get closer now to that, that undefinable, like God, theory like that god-shaped hole inside of an athlete that currently is being called the central central governor Governor theory yeah yeah i was just talking about with an athlete that i work with about this but that it's almost like intelligent design in nature that is becoming a scientific term now like back in the day like the hand of god in nature was seen like there is god there's religion or there is science and now science is and like at some point there are unexplainable things but if we just call it intelligent design it links everything together and it actually makes sense and it's becoming kind of commonplace in science now to talk about intelligent design in nature Hmm. and we had that with exercise it was vo2 max or it was toughness some people are crampers some aren't some people and suddenly it's like well if we just what if we think about it from the idea of a central governor that this is the reason that explain suddenly it all tied together people like yeah that makes a lot of sense and so what is the test for how hands-on or hands-off your central governor is. That's the next stage. Right. But it's like a wide range of variables that can kind of make up that central governor. And this is a lot of times how I Mm -hmm. think about injuries now is that like, yes, there might be a pain someplace in like your ankle, but that might be to stop movement that is inefficient or is hurting somewhere up the chain. Right. And that's just where the signaling is. That could be like an example of that. But like when it comes to endurance, it is those like the ideas of, is it your VO2 max? Is it your lactate threshold? Is it just like Mm. a muscular efficiency? Because there's so many variables. It's going to be, that'd be amazing if we could test for that some, at some point, because the idea is like, okay, you're, you're ramping up so much that your brain is just in distress. So it's going to do something to make you slow down. And to override that, that's kind of what the grit thing is. Correct. Is that overridable just by mental training or is there a physical piece, all of these pieces that can just kind of bump that governor a little bit higher? Yeah. And we were talking about this a while back when I watched uh, Ayla, my five-year-old, not five-year-old, she's eight now, goodness, wrestle. Someone lunged at her at practice and she immediately, without thinking, lunged back with a forearm. Hmm. It was just 
hardwired into her. Fight, not flight. Yeah. Whereas my son would have taken a step back to evade. She was wired to meet force with force. So is there a testing young to find out, like, you can test that. You put a kid in a room and scare him. A bunch of kids are going to hit you and a bunch of kids are going to fall on the ground crying and some are going to back up and reassess. Like there, That's a simple test. But what is that for grit? What is that version for toughness? Mm. And I'm sure in Eastern Bloc countries, they were running tests like that kind of kids to find <laughs> out what's your propensity for everything. You're now in boxing. Track them, yeah. You're now in the <laughs> wrestling ra- program. Because um, I think it's it could be trainable as well, though. For sure. You know, it's probably harder to train it if it's not like inherent in you. But um, I think it's trainable. Yeah. And then we start talking about back to your real original question, which is what else do we need to be testing? Or I think if we had to separate running and say there are undefinable it characteristics that we can work on, like grit and toughness and being a closer in a race or hanging on to a pace, that's a skill that can be worked on. It's also intangible to some extent. But what if we just tried to identify every physical quality that you needed? So how often are muscle biopsies performed to find how truly fast and slow twitch is an athlete? Uh, almost, I mean, almost, almost never. never. Yeah, it's like it's super invasive. Wouldn't that be an incredibly useful tool to find out? Now that we know what muscle fiber type you are, we know what you're going to respond best to, what your propensity is for training, and what your biggest risk factors will be in training in terms of overuse mm-hmm. injuries. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a totally unexplored area. And is there a way to get biopsies done that's less invasive? Yeah, more. Will that be? Yeah. So so Christian uh, Blumenfeld and uh, Gustav Eden, they're the two most dominant triathletes on the face of the earth right now, at least on the male side. And they're both both Norwegians, both part of that science led program. But I just watched an interview with him where he was talking about everything they did leading into the Olympics, where it was going to be hot and humid. And they experimented with essentially every type of internal temperature monitoring device, core temperature. Hmm. Because it wasn't that we need to find our wattage to ride at, which is incredibly scientific, or our heart rate to stay at. It's what can we ride at in order to keep our core temperature down later than anyone else in the race so that we can arrive to the run ready to work rather than to crumble. Hmm. So if we can just get there two degrees less than everyone else, like that is a app. If you talk about a machine, one of the most important things to control is heat. Any machine that overheats essentially breaks or is way less efficient. And so if we were racing cars, we would address the heat component immediately. You have to have cooling. Otherwise, your, your, your engine overheats, you're done. We haven't done that with the human body, really. Hmm. People, we pay lip service to it. We'll have cooling arm sleeves on in races, or they'll do uh, water or cold vests on before a marathon. But in terms of actually how do we pace ourselves to limit our core temperature rising, because it's like heart rate. It can get high, but the sooner it gets there, can't, the sooner you're really not come back. coming back from that. Yeah, it's mostly subjective at this point. It's like, and yeah. it's rare. Do you, have you ever thought about that in a race? Like, I'm feeling too hot. I need to slow down. Only once I've tipped. Right. I'm like, I'm too hot. I'm dying. It's like the race is over. I don't think you feel your lactate threshold approaching until it is there, until you're really dialed into it. Yes. You notice the second you step over, you're like, oh, I'm for sure over. Absolutely. But you don't know whether without a heart rate strap, you don't know if you're five beats away or three beats away. Mm -hmm. 
Unless you're super dialed in. Yes. And I assume core temperature is the same thing. I guess. Like I'm, I'm warm. I can handle it. I'm warm. I can handle it. I'm freaking dying. Yeah, I suppose. But then like trying to control that. Hmm. Because it's, so, it's such an external piece, you know? Because a lot of times yeah. it's the fact that it's just like if the sun's out, if it's hot in the convention center, you know? It's like ah. They did wearables. Found that where you wear it really changed what the reading was and what your movement and sweat type. I'm sure. They did – they would swallow actual monitors yes, that yeah. would be able to, to, to go out. But timing of swallowing it and ingesting of liquids changed where it traveled through the body. And throughout a 90-minute race, <laughs> readings could not be coming from where you wanted it to. So then they went with suppositories. Interesting. And they did workouts and races with suppository-based core temperature trackers that would send information to your watch. And now they've partnered with an actual company who is working on this and had something, it looked like a heart rate strap attachment or something. I could be off on this, but is working on giving consistent readings to your watch from a wearable device. Through the suppository? Not suppository based anymore, but I think he, I thought he raced at the Olympics with a suppository core temperature tracker and they rode with that as their main metric. Wow. They rode watching their core temperature and they adjusted their pace based off of that, which I don't think anyone else did. How were the results? Blumenfeld won it. <laughs> he actually won. It worked. Yeah. Hmm. And so they're doing it with Ironman now too. And they were first and third at Ironman World Championships and won the previous one as it well. It makes sense for a race of that duration. Duration. Yes. Like I feel, maybe a marathon too, maybe, but I don't know. Like what, there's gotta be a point where the duration and how, how that heat and your core body temperature affects the performance mm -hmm. where it would make sense. Maybe even not, maybe not even a marathon. Maybe that's even too short. They felt it mattered in an, in the Olympic distance triathlon. How long do those typically take? I'm not dialed in. I want to say they're right around two I'm hours. I'm not in on, I don't, I canceled my Peacock subscription. I'm going to look it up while you fill the space, but I, I think it's right around two hours for the pros. So I'm thinking this because there, there has to be a, a certain pace element to it. And if people can sustain a certain pace, even mm -hmm. with their core temperature going beyond, then the race could just be over by the time that, that really matters. And, and, you know, two hours, even you know, a long race, 145, 145 for Blumenfeld to win. Interesting. And Alex that's Yee was 145 as well. Nine seconds down. That's all they went on is body temperature on a race that short. Not all, but that was the main oh. field of display on the watch. I see, I see, I see, I see. Now, could I be confusing the Olympic try with a different world championship he ran afterwards? Yes, I could be. But, I'm fi but I remember specifically a championship race that was his main field on his, on his uh, monitor while he biked. Okay. Okay. That's – I – when you initially said it, that my interpretation was he dictated his effort off of the temperature where he did well i'm sure he was looking at other things too and he he was just making sure that it wasn't going mm -hmm. over it wasn't like like a power meter or whatever you put yourself in a specific place he was more having it up just to make sure it wasn't going above where he wanted it to go i'll do that with heart rate like i'll have the heart rate on the main monitor but i won't necessarily go off of it to, to dictate where i am i'll check in on it mm -hmm. off of other subjective feelings to make sure like it's, it's reading well. So it's probably, it was probably something like that. Right. The way he said it, it, 
the way I took it was that that was up on the big face and he had other pieces in there, but they were checking that constantly. And the other pieces you were trying to hit throughout the race, but not at the, ex, uh, not at the expense of exceeding your agreed upon core temperature progression. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. So like, like heart rate. rate, like we can, we can follow moves and we can do whatever we want, but we can't tip over. Right. Okay. I get that. But it's so one little example, heat is a byproduct of, of any work and they targeted heat. What else are we not targeting? So a muscle fiber type. I think those are the tests that will really make it so that it is a vacuum. You control every controllable possible and then design workouts like Dr. Ferrari. Every workout possible in order to elicit the perfect in a vacuum workout. And then you have to pair it to race specific dog workouts. I guess that when, when I pose this question, I forgot I even asked this question. Nice job staying on that question. We wrote it out. We were still going. I would... I would guess if we did all of these different things, mm-hmm. we would end up in the same place. Just how we do with the lactate threshold versus anaerobic threshold that we're already kind of doing the things that need to be done to get the results that we're getting just because how many different ways are there? And I guess this is, I guess we're going to, we're, we're supposed to talk about what some of the ways that are kind of new ish, but even they're not even that new it just kind of kind of went in and out of yeah. uh, of trend so what i think they do like talking about the double lactate threshold work that we're going to be talking about like talking about less of an emphasis on vo2 max is you can't really say that the top end is way better than it ever has been now this time in history is maybe the best time to say that it is a little better but if you took shoes out of yes, it. Yes, that's technology. The top end is not significantly better. So focusing on VO2 max or focusing on huge mileage, it does get the best, most durable people to almost the same plateau either way. Mm. I think what these other pieces do is they allow more people to get there mm. because they don't have to worry about injury as much because you're more technically planning out your training and you're not doing the the superfluous work okay like doing a ton of vo2 max work really does eat at the volume you can hold Mm. and it eats at the amount of threshold work you can do but you're still doing it all because you know it needs to be combined but you're not totally sure how the best people are going to be great off anything but the next best people or the mid-tier i think they really benefit from not doing anything they don't need to do and putting all their time into what they do need to do But then I think it extends the careers of the other people as well, because you didn't waste a decade working on something you didn't have to work on. You worked a little bit more sustainably. So I think there's all that. And then I think we're also talking that 0.1 to 0.5, that percent improvement at the very top, where at the very top, it really does matter. Yeah. And that's, I mean, again, using the basketball example, like an NBA, now that it's like the, the greatest amount of talent that we've ever had. Right. Yes. There's, it's just right raising the tide across the board. And that's essentially what, and that's because of like the training methods and just what people mm-hmm. know and would have learned in terms of like skill on that end, as opposed to us, we're talking about like output and fitness, or whatever. Um, so you're saying that would be, it would in- improve the depth of field much greater if we had a much more dialed in way that we knew worked. Cause right now it's yeah. right now we just covered this past 40 minutes of, we think we know. But we don't know. <laughs> we can like, Correct. okay, got it. To follow the NBA analogy, the top three-point shooters in the league are still shooting the same percentages they were shooting back in the day, sometimes lower, but the volume is 
way higher and the shots are more difficult. And all and everybody can do it. And that's the thing. There used to be like every team had a Robert Dory. A white guy or not a, not Robert Dory. Someone yeah. who could sit in the corner or a Steve Kerr and shoot 45% on three. Mm-hmm. Every team had a guy. Now every wing has to be able to shoot 40 plus percent from the, from the baseline threes on either side in order to have a spot on a rotation. Mm-hmm. You can't just be a three and D guy. You have to be six, nine, three and D and be able to create. Totally. And so the, like the, the old role players wouldn't be able to make it in their current skill set. Could they learn the current skill set? Sure. But everyone has a Euro step now, not just the, the top guards. Not Ginobili, Harden, right? Yeah. Ginobili made it a weapon. Now your seven foot center leading the break is going to Euro every time because it's the only way not to get a charge. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, I think it raises up all ships by focusing on the things that really matter in starting to get rid of the things that we've realized aren't totally necessary for every runner. And what the context is, right? Like there's context around these yeah. things that, that end up being a bit of not necessarily a fight, but just like a lot of more explanation explanation involved. Like you said, it might work for that top percent of athletes, but for everybody else, the context isn't correct and it probably will not work for them. Yeah. And even some of those top guys maybe could have been, metrically better off of different training Mm -hmm. but some of those top tier finely tuned specimens need to do the thing that tells them they're good Mm -hmm. and for some people that's 180 Mm -hmm. miles a week what other people can't do for some people that is a huge amount of speed work even if it's almost detrimental to them they walk in feeling bulletproof and when everyone's really damn good sometimes it's just the person who shows up knowing they're really good that wins and so along those lines, when training for like a marathon or something like that, like physiologically, that mm-hmm. marathon pace, not going to do a lot, but no. like the physical part, I think there's an argument for that. You kind of need to build up and just be strong, but that can be taken care of with supplemental easy miles, but that pace isn't going to make you more prepared, more fit, I should say necessarily, but you still, people will still want it. It's still beneficial to do a 12 mile tempo at marathon pace. Yeah. You could, and people do. I think Eliud Kipchoge probably doesn't run marathon pace for one step during training. Oh, I doubt it. I doubt he it. He does a ton of Ks at 10K to 15K pace work, and he does a lot of long continuous runs that he will touch marathon pace somewhere throughout there. But I don't think he sets out to do his marathon pace tempo ever. He's dialed in. He knows the deal. Marathon pace is important for the average runner so they can run the form and the cadence that they need to be able to keep because the less elite you are, the greater disparity you have in form and cadence between your different strides. The easier it is to screw up. Yeah, and the confidence that I can keep it. But a high-end runner, they run high cadence, four-foot running with beautiful, relaxed stride, whether they're running mile or easy run. Mm -hmm. They just always run beautiful. They always run with good hip action. They don't have to learn that by doing marathon pace running. Right. So again, it, it is more mechanical, right? It's like, and running, Certainly. running different paces, it's different skill. It's low skill, but it's, it's not Eurostep skill, but it's still skill. Yeah. It's low complexity of skill, but it's hard to keep the more tired you get. For sure. For sure. So like the, the enduring, it's like an, an, it's an endurance skill. So we've gone 40 minutes now. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked one bit about why we got together to talk. No, we're just hanging out. I thought we were talking about shoes. <laughs> I mean, we can pivot to that at any point. <laughs> Whole new Speaking podcast. Of which, you got the Endorphin Pro 3s. I do. I have them. How much have you tested them out now? 
I wore them. I wore them almost every day this week. I've done an hour run. I've done some sled push, sled pull. I'm I'm training for high rocks and stuff. I don't know. Um, and I've done some machine work just to make sure how like that it feels stable. That it's good. Yeah. yeah. Did yeah. some wall balls. They're gonna work. I think. And I, in terms of a super shoe for marathoning, I think that they are not above. They're not. They're. They might be in the same class as something like a Alpha Fly or. Really, you would put them that high? Uh, just under, just under. Just under. They're not blowing me away in terms of the energy return or just like that foot feel, like that wow factor. They're mm-hmm. very comfortable. The fit is okay. It fits well initially, while running. And I talked to someone else who had a similar experience. The it seems to get a little tight. Like they're not around the midfoot arch on the upper not great not a great what, what would you how would you cut what's that word for that like uh the lockdown. lockdown the lockdown's not great but okay. um but stability wise you seem to be a little bit be a little bit better than those other ones that are stacked high so if you're gonna do full-on marathon shoe i would i probably wouldn't but for high, hybrid it seems very interesting you like them on the sled it works i'm gonna pull on that carpet and the warm-up before dallas which is this weekend and mm-hmm make the call but i'm i want to wear them good yeah so not bad the way you felt about a shoe coming into the first race before you've done it are you highest on these shoes compared to any other shoe you've ever brought to a high rocks the rc elite ones i was very high on because of how well they perform on the carpet until i ran into like a dusty floor like a, an extra polished concrete yeah. floor yeah like i had to learn that lesson so now when i bring those it's like these are a maybe so these are probably the best outside of those okay I'll, give, like I'll give you a full report after next week. That RC Elite One is, if it were, if you could just control the surface you were running around on the turns, mm-hmm. if you had that say, yeah, that's perfect. That's I would want a little bit more stack height because it's a very firm shoe. Same, same. It doesn't give you that super shoe response the way that you want. There's no tip to the plate. There's no roll to that one. No, and I think that's okay for hybrid. You know, I don't know if that tip. That's what I'm. A, that's why I'm a little. There's a bit of a roll in the endorphin threes. That's why I'm a little concerned Mm -hmm. about the pull from what I understand. Like a lot of people have worn them and pull fine, but uh, I really don't want that to affect them. It's what I liked about these uh, meta speed skies. The edges have a tip. The skies are a bit more alpha fly like where you hit and you bounce yourself forward. You propel yourself. And so their, their bottom is relatively flat. You have a late tip if you want it, but it's not gonna. It didn't feel bad on any station, mm. so you didn't feel the super shoe roll forward. But you certainly have some boing off had the that ground. Cushion. But they're they're less crazy than the Alpha, and when you step into them, you don't sink and rock. You just feel like, oh, this is a firm pop off this if you want it. So that's why I like. That's why I chose it. Are those thirty nine? Are those stacked 39? These might be a hair under. These might be like 36 or 37. The new version they maxed out, I think. Okay. These are the, the the pluses came out next. These are not the plus. Okay. Need to get some of them Rocket X, though. Uh, high hopes for those. Those look pretty cool. Look I like good. them. They have all, nice too. They check the boxes. They do. And like Hoka, they should have been in the game from the jump. I don't know what they've been Maybe doing. They just didn't need it. They don't care. They don't, they don't care about following trends either. They're just like, whatever. We do what we want. Yeah. Respect. So we say all of this to talk about double threshold training, Mm -hmm. which is in a way ironic because at its core, lactate threshold training 
I believe is the best practice for a distance runner to use right now because I think it's the most applicable metric you can test for that also is race specific mm-hmm. like vo2 max or aerobic threshold or anything like that or pace based even pace based training doesn't always help in racing especially once you move to different venues different terrains lactate threshold really is the driver of all racing to some extent regardless of terrain uphill downhill i think it's if you could only pick one to go off of it would either be aerobic threshold or lactate threshold and knowing lactate threshold from a race perspective is probably more important for an everyday runner endurance athlete aerobic threshold might be but either way that these inflection points and i would say anaerobic is probably the easiest to test and most applicable metric that you can get in the moment for any athlete Maybe I shouldn't say easiest to test. Easiest lab test. Heart rate's the easiest. Right, right, right. But not, not, not as useful. Yeah. Next step, I would say this is the most important. And yet the way we're going to talk about it will, when we transfer it to how does the everyday person use it, you're not spending five to 10 grand a year on no. blood lactate. Because if you ha- have you had the test done ever? No, I, don't, I haven't ever done it. Because I don't, I don't like regressing. I could see that starting with real accurate testing will give you better feeling to your metrics so that you can go more by feel and pace. But I don't like the idea of starting doing my workouts with caffeine and then having to stop doing them. Mm. I don't want to start with testing and then have to be less accurate with what I do. So I'm approaching it from the mm-hmm. other end of the spectrum. I what see, about I you? See. I've done it one time. It was a one-off, right? And it was okay. this company that was – they put a heart rate monitor on me and they – did the finger prick and the test was uh, ascending pace 800s until you got to a point where you just couldn't do where you couldn't hold the pace and they just and then continuous or rest between rest between i forget how much i don't it wasn't one to one for sure i think it was maybe a minute rest maybe half was it like walk while getting a finger prick each time uh i wasn't walking but i was definitely stopped i was stopped right like were you getting a finger prick in between each rep between each rep yes yeah. So then they would give me – so they did the test and they gave me the heart rate that associated with the – but the heart rate monitor was just wrong. Like so much – so wrong compared to what anything else I've ever worn that it, the information was useless. That's frustrating. Yeah. So you had your blood lactate concentration and your perceived effort. That's all you could take away. That's all I could really take away. Yeah. Um, so where this would be the most beneficial as you're talking about would be within training, like the testing and then being able to kind of like yes. use it as a, a framework for how to approach each workout is helpful ish, mm-hmm. but it's still, that changes, right? The, the lactate, the blood lactate will change where the heart rate is the thing that was kind of the constant on that. And it like, I just didn't use it. <laughs> I just didn't find it useful at all in that one off. But if it was consistent, if we had that and you could test each workout because then you just, because then you know, if you, if you, hit the intended uh exertion for what you're going for right yeah so it is super useful so i mean the the science behind it is that you train the vast majority of your quote-unquote quality work Mm. the times that you're going to run out and do something with intensity you do it right at or just under or slightly above your lactate threshold. Mm. And you're taking a blood draw each time to actually see what your lactate accumulation in your blood looks like, and it's measured by millimoles. Mm. And 
right off the bat, people did what people do and they tried to throw a standard number on it, which was aerobic threshold is 2.0 millimole and anaerobic threshold is 4.0 millimole. Two to four. Two to four. And then they started doing tests with the athletes who are actually, or not doing tests with athletes, but coaches who use this with their athletes start seeing a crazy range that there are athletes who can hold eight to 10 millimole at lactate threshold at times. And some people who are hitting it at like 2.6. In those instances, how are they, what are they considering lactate threshold just that they can continuously do the work? That's a good question. It's a good question. And I, I don't have that specific, how they determine it. Because that's when, when I, when I use this for myself or when I prescribe this, it's mostly based off of rest. And if we want to get into specifics, I'm sure you will. Like if you can do this workout with this short of rest at a pace, that's fairly consistent, you're probably right at it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so it's a very specific style of training where you are hitting intended markers and you are adjusting your pace and intensity to stay there. If you start out running at three minutes per K for your thousand meter intervals and you start, you get up, let's say your 4.0 millimoles, the number you're trying to stay under, you're trying to stay three, eight to 4.0. You're adjusting your pace each rep to stay there. At the beginning, that might be three minutes. By the end, it might be 310, 315, but you're trying to spend time accumulating that concentration. And so you actually adjust things throughout because you're approaching it from a systemic side, not a pace side. Yes. You're building engine not specific pacing. And that was very difficult for a lot of training groups to even want to get behind because it flies in the face of we're hitting this pace or we're cutting down from this pace or we are nailing race pace plus five, whatever it is, it's different. I had a hard time when, like I always understood this concept, but I always wanted to put it in terms of like the pace and how it all worked as well. And so for that reason, I would always do longer intervals just because it felt like you could, like mm-hmm. we, talk, we actually talked about this before where it's like the grindier longer ones feel more, like you get into that mental space that you were probably going to come across, whether it's one of those intangibles for central governor, you might be coming face to face with that dude and the, or female, whatever. And they, and then you have to kind of push through, right. Or like kind of sit there. What would you consider a longer interval just for the audience? Uh, five minutes, not even that long. Five minutes. Yeah. Like I would kind of, I would start them at a mile mm-hmm. and then that really flipped when, uh, Nick Mask told me about a workout that his college team did. They called them Georgetowns where they would run like 32 by 400 slow, mm-hmm. like at thresh, threshold pace, like the threshold pace, which for a 400 isn't very, is like very, very easy, you know? Right. And, it, and then it was like, oh, you're just going after the response. Response. And you get stride, stride practice. For sure. You can run perfect stride for every step of those. But it's a bit of a disconnect when we're training for an event and we want the event. Absolutely. And that's, that's where there's, there's issue with this and it's hard. And that's where it's like, okay, you ran three on the first. If you're running three eleven on the, on the eighth, then are you not dying? Like usually when you start going backwards Mm -hmm. in pace, it's an indicator that the workout's not going well. But when you have to go after this internal metric, it's a complete flip in, in mindset for me, it was anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the piece that's tough for people. Which is like the, one of the hardest pieces, which I know you run into as a coach, and I know everyone listening runs into at some point in their own running, is I need to feel like I'm practicing what I'm going to use on race day. For sure. And more often than not, I need to feel that, or I need to feel that I'm getting faster. And what these workouts do is over time, the body of work shows you how much better you get. 
but you might not feel like you're getting better in one in one individual session. And oftentimes I would say in these workouts, 50% of my workouts don't feel race specific. Would you agree with that? Depends on the race. I guess. Yes. It does depend on the race. Yeah. Uh, like for 5k. Yeah. Like if you're bringing for 5k, you, you, it won't feel that way unless you're really taking it to the well too much at the end. Right. Unless you're, unless mm-hmm. it's designed to cut down and by the end you want it to feel that way. Yeah. But, uh, but in like say a high rocks, for example, it might feel that way in physically internally, but the pace mechanically is so much slower in a high rocks that the threshold pace is actually faster. It feels, feels different. Yeah, that's very true. So I want to, I want to spend a few minutes. I just want to speak for like two or three minutes on the theory of this. And then I want you to round it out. Okay. So the way this is being used in sport is that all the paces you can work at are going to incite some change in your body. VO2 max is not a pace that matters any more than any other pace, but let's call it 3K or 5K pace. Working at 3K to 5K pace will incite positive change in your body. It puts your body in a state of crisis and it has to compensate to respond to that and you get faster. Absorbing more You get better at the... Yeah, yeah. So it's going to work. As will marathon pace, as will half marathon pace, as will 10K pace. All these different paces you can work at will incite positive change in your body, but they all have a recovery component associated with it and a risk associated with it. The faster you work, the deeper into the anaerobic end of the pool you work, the greater the recovery demands and the more those recovery demands start to erode your aerobic capacity. So if you think of this like you built up this big aerobic base, the sharper the work you lay on top of that, the worse your aerobic capacity gets that you built up. Now, the slower your work is, the more it continues to help or feed and keep stable your aerobic capacity and the less recovery you you need. So in the past, a lot of training groups try to balance the work between all three, let's say, 5k or faster right around threshold and slightly slower than threshold. Mm-hmm. They try to balance it and interwork it. And what these threshold based training groups are saying is, listen, you can get 90% of threshold, hundred percent of threshold, 110% of threshold and anything throughout there, you're going to get between 98 and hundred percent of the benefit cardiovascularly. Mm-hmm. But the closer you get to 90% of threshold, the, the less recovery you have in between. And you can do this almost every other day for a high trained athlete who's double doubling every day. But if you get real far away from that 110% of lactate threshold, now you're going to need a full two days recovery and it will start to erode your aerobic capacity more. So they're saying this is pure bang for our buck. If we can do 90% of lactate threshold pace, and get 98% of the benefit of being at 100% of it, but we can have 70% of the recovery time, then we can do 25% more work each day and 25% more frequency throughout our training week. And so you start stacking up this total amount of work that's astronomical compared to running 5K or faster, but it's costing you less and it allows you to keep a higher volume, which also builds up your aerobic capacity at the same time. So you're not eroding it as much, even if you're not building it up anymore. So they're saying it's the safest route. It's easily manageable with blood lactate measuring and you're getting most of the benefits anyway, but now we're just doing way more of it. So we might actually get more benefit. So that's my... 10,000 foot view of what this system is and why people do it. Right. And just to kind of summarize. So when you're saying at 90%, 
you're not going so that's allowing yourself to run a little bit slower so that you can mm -hmm. recover faster and you can do more later and kind of how this threshold pace is it's like the threshold area is it's the way i think of it it's, it's the fastest you can run for the longest amount of time right like on either other side great way of looking you at know it. like just to simplify it's like how can i get the most if you go faster you'll do less if you go slower you won't go as fast so you kind of get like you said best of both worlds kind of wrapped up into mm -hmm. one have you ever done um orange theory no so the orange it's the they base off the heart rate zone the orange mm -hmm. is this pace mm. and they want you to sit there because they know this is what you could do for this 45 minute class if you go harder you're going to slow down and you won't get the like they i mean it's all about caloric burn in that right like you won't get as good of a workout if you go too fast. And if you go slower, you're not giving yourself all you can have. So they kind of tapped this in and brought it to the masses, but told it and packaged it in this group setting boutique way. So yes, I, I think that the way that you wrapped it up is, is really succinct in terms of just not going all the way there so that you can preserve yourself to go faster again sooner. And two parts to, to why that is. I recently, and we've talked about this, um, but the muscular recovery to me is what runners in particular need to focus on more than say like systemic fatigue. Mm -hmm. I, I've found, I, that's what I've learned in, especially going into this hybrid space where it's not all running all the time and the frequency in which you can do intensity is more than 20% or whatever, right? So right. being under, not going all the way to the well is gonna preserve that muscular piece. And I guess like, how much do you think that would take a toll on you, like your central nervous system, like aero like your aerobic fatigue or whatever? Like how tired will your heart get? And is that something we need to like really factor in as much as we thought we needed to? Well, I think it does matter, but it's a sliding scale the higher you get towards max heart rate, the more it affects your heart. And your heart gets more fatigued by that than doing long, steady work. Mm. The heart is an endurance machine. Anything that makes it go faster is what taxes it. It beats all day long no matter what. So by nature, it's a slow-twitch athlete. Mm -hmm. By nature, it's a grinder. Making it go faster is what really stresses it. Making it spike really stresses it. And so... Again, the lower you stay on that anaerobic scale while still reaping as much benefit as possible, the less cardiac stress you have. And that's different than what a lot of training groups wanted to do, which is let's work as fast as we can work without getting injured. Mm -hmm. This is let's work as slow as we can work while still getting the anaerobic benefit. Mm -hmm. It's a total different it's, – it's, it's just like pure dichotomy in how these groups are set up. And this side that says let's work a little slower and get more – work in, they tend to have really stable, consistent results because they don't have drops in fitness ever because they can work pretty solidly all year round. So that alone seems to speak to there's less systemic damage in this system because you don't have to take big deloads. Yeah. Anecdotally, it works that way, right? And the consistency piece is very important for endurance athletes in general. And this is just really helping facilitate the consistency of some sort of training. So I, I, I like what you're saying. Like, I think that this is the, the base work. <laughs> like you can do this all the time and it can kind of keep mm -hmm. you relatively fit and you can still recover and like build base with this. Yeah. 
and yet it's a base work that has you ready to race. Mm-hmm. You're basically only missing the very specific skill and high-end performance of whatever your chosen race is. That's the only thing you're missing, whereas the classic base phase training has you ready to run and handle whatever is going to come in the next phase. This style is sustainable, but it contains enough of everything you need to be able to race. Mm -hmm. You can race off just this. Mm -hmm. Now, the further you get from that pace as your specific goal pace, the less you're prepared for it. A mile would be hard, right? But... The the way that this is implemented is there's, I mean, Marius Bakken is one of the pioneers of this. He's a European, he was a 5K um, record holder for, was it Sweden? It was one of those. I don't remember it, where it, he yeah, ran. Yeah, it was one of the um, Nordic countries. He ran 13 teen back in the day and was a world championship runner. And he started working on this with his coaches and he worked with Peter Coe a bit and they all worked together to formulate this, and then he passed it down to the current generation of Nordic athletes and the Ingebrigtsens, who are the most famous, probably the most famous white distance runners in the world today, and probably the most famous European endurance family ever. Mm. And they are disciples of this. And the way they execute it is they do double thresholds. They they can do double workouts because they don't take much damage. They do basically three to five minute intervals twice a week in the morning. And in the PM, they do like 60 to 90 second intervals on those same days. And then they have what Bakken refers to as the X day. You have to have that third session has to have an X factor to it. And it basically is that stir up the mud, rile the water up and do the thing that you're missing because you're doing four quality sessions already this week in this one stride in this one system. And they use it. They run what? 10 to 20 by 200 meter at 800 to mile pace uphill. Mm. So off of that system alone, they can race a mile. Mm-hmm. Now they sharpen up when seasons come around, but in the off season, I think they set the, I think Jakob set the 3k indoor record off just this without sharpening. When they did that 3k time trial during COVID, do you remember that? They did a virtual race, a zoom race. It was those three brothers against forgetting who was it like kip limo chemboy and someone else in africa and they did it on a zoom call at the same time Mm. they ran a 3k start at the same time and he won and he was just in his base phase their their mileage they consider it low but it is what 110 miles 115 yeah so 110 to 120 almost year round almost so there there is definitely an element of volume that allows them to to be able to structurally hold up to this the end Jakob is the one who's had the best in ter- best luck in terms of health, correct? Yeah, he has. He also runs the least four foot out of all of them, which is interesting. He's pretty long. And he started the youngest on this program as well. Another, the, the triathletes do this as well, right? And this is where it yep. really hits for me uh, or any type of athlete who is less who has less volume in terms of their running, right? Because if they're putting in, if you're putting in 110, 15 miles a week, you're building up a lot of structural strength. But if you, mm-hmm. if you're moving the threshold work between low impact machines, then it's like, how much of this can you do? <laughs> yeah. Can you do this every day? Because yeah. I mean, and that's where the systemic part comes in, right? Like how, yeah. like where, where is there that tipping point? I think it's, higher than than what we would especially as runners 
traditional mm-hmm. um, endurance athletes come from. Like, I think it's way higher than what we would want to even like admit. Well, because we always look at CrossFitters and fighters or cyclists and say they're dumb or they're doping or it's both. Mm. Because they've shown us those things to be true over the years. Mm -hmm. But we can't accept that they can do the level of volume and intensity that they do and stay healthy. So we say they're just dumb and lucky or they're doping or it's a bit of both. But it doesn't have to only be that. There's plenty of people doping in our sport too. I don't think that we're any dirtier or cleaner than CrossFit and cycling. Like it's rampant everywhere. So if it is, we can't use that as an excuse. But we don't like to admit that they can do the level of intensity and doubles and triples that they do. But the big key here is that historically runners associate quality run sessions with feelings of destruction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I need recovery. Whereas this is more like keep the ball rolling. They The Ingebrigtsons do high volume, but they've been building since they were seven. Right. And they're not doing anything crazy. Their long run is 15 to 20K. I don't think they go longer than 15 to 20K in any one. I think 20K is their long training session. So you're talking what? 12 to 13 miles is their long run because they're not caring about the long run. They want to hit every day well. So they're running 10K and 10K a lot of days or 15K and 5K is AM, PM runs. So they're never trashed. And they can just do it again. So their volume builds up, but they don't need big reductions from it until they do training camps or things like that where they go hard. But it's sustainable high volume because the difference between doing a 15-mile run or splitting it up to a 10 and a 5 is pretty big in terms of how you feel the next day. Oh, yeah. It's it's a funny way of uh, of thinking about it. They're like, what if we just never feel terrible? It's like, what do you mean you're just yeah. never going to feel terrible? It's like, we're just going to feel good and be able to run well all the time like doesn't make any sense and what would you do if you didn't feel destroyed after a workout you'd probably do another one you'd probably do more right <laughs> and that's and that's what happens so when we think like oh the track sessions are brutal all the time i'm sure you get it from athletes when are we gonna start speed sessions on the track i look forward to how awful that's gonna be it's like well they they probably won't be awful at all this season we're going to hit some specific race prep workouts that might be awful, not but hard, yeah. these lactate threshold sessions aren't going to be awful. And because you're not puking and dry heaving and terrible and almost unable to walk down the stairs the next morning, 24 to 48 hours later, you're ready for another session. And that's that piece that most runners can't resolve in their minds is how could you do another one two days later and another one two days later, plus PM ones each time because my legs feel like this. And the answer is, Your legs won't feel like that if you're not going to the well every time. Our big hammer swing comes from frequency, not intensity. And not just the physical, right? Like mentally taking it to the well and then doing it like 48 hours later is hard. In that moment of taking it to the well, and that's something with these workouts you're not doing, you know, unless it is something very specific in in terms of, of volume or cutting it down or something, having something that finishes really uncomfortable. Another another piece with this though, that I know the, the Ingebrigtsens are, are are ones to really look at as kind of like this beacon, but they're doing high mileage running over because, from frequency, but the events they're preparing for are are much shorter than what I'm preparing for, what what you're preparing for, probably what everyone listening is preparing for, right? So it's like. Mm-hmm. How to how to take the information that they're doing off of races that take them three and a half minutes and 13 minutes versus an hour. Mm-hmm. 
right? Like, and how, and yeah. how that kind of what we can take to prepare for something like a, a beast or a half marathon. Yeah. And I think that brings us right into the hybrid space, right? Because again, if I consider triathlon hybrid, hmm. then that's where we look. And that was the first place that we went to when we were, you and I were working on how we think about this. We turned to the triathletes and said, well, what are they doing? And right away, the first interviews with Blumenfeld and, and Eden is that, yeah, we're, we're on the double threshold train. And sometimes we triple because we have three disciplines again. Right. And that was, that was mind altering for me. I assume for you as well to start realizing, oh, you can stack these in different disciplines. So I look at the Ingebrigtsen thing and say, all right, you're doing 10 by three, by three minutes in the morning and then 15 by 400 in the evening. And you're doing that twice per week. And then you're doing, ah, I can't run that volume. I just can't. So when I would start it, I would have to either back off on one or the other, the AM or the PM. And then you're not getting the real benefit of double thresholds and you would build into it. But early on, you're, you're not, go you might even detrain slightly early as you adapt to the pounding of it. And then it was like light bulb moment. We can use different modalities. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of really interesting things happen to me from a realization standpoint, but that. That different modality thing was a game changer for us. It like takes the cap off of what we thought we sh sh should be doing, you know, could and should. Yeah. It's like multiple streams of income. <laughs> right. It's like, I can get some of this from the skier too. It's like, okay. And then implementing it to those machines, which when I was doing it, it was um, a little bit slower just because muscularly I'm not as fine tuned as I am with running. Mm -hmm. So the pieces end up being a little bit shorter. The volume might be a little bit shorter, but building that up to then kind of match where I could be with running was an interesting piece as well. It's like, okay, now I can really do some work. Yeah. And I, I found right away I had to, I had to make myself stand by that North star of work is work. Your heart doesn't necessarily know modality. Mm-hmm. It knows, it knows how hard it's working. That's what I had to just keep myself pointed at, which is work is work. And if I'm getting 10 by three minutes in the morning or in the first part of this session, I have 30 minutes of threshold work in. So just take a, it's not even a leap of faith, a small step forward and say, anything on top of that is good. And I'm getting there in a slightly compromised fashion. And so if I go to a skier and say, I don't have the musculature, I don't have the that just the, the pathway set in place muscularly to do long intervals. If I just do 30, 30 or 60, 60 right, right. for just 10 or 15 minutes in the evening, I'm still spooling my heart back up on every single one of these reps. And I'm stacking it onto 30 minutes that I already did, but I'm not taking any impact. Let's see how that feels for two or three weeks. And what do you find is that you don't feel any worse, <laughs> right? That that's the thing. It's like, oh, I, I, cause you expect to feel bad. I expected to feel bad. And it's like, yeah. Oh, it's the, it's the, the musculature of it, especially aging athletes. That is always the piece mm -hmm. that you want to be most conscious of. Like, that's, what's going to break down. Like I'm not, my, my career is not going to be going to end. Cause I got tired. Something's going to happen. <laughs> and, and like that, like muscularly, it's going to take a long time to recover. It's probably gonna be over, but or Being, tendon or ligament. Exactly. Right. Which is pretty common. But it generally impact, not overuse. Yes, exactly. And like the overuse piece, that's that's movement, right? If you're if you're not moving in an appropriate way, and like we talked about, go back, back to the beginning, 
the bikes, the rowers, the ski ergs, you can't really move that poorly. You have to move within it. Stress fractures get lumped in with overuse injuries, but they're not. They're over impact injuries. Mm -hmm. Movement. Or under under fueling, right? In, in some cases, in, in some cases, right? You know, it's it's nutrition or it's over impact. You're not going to get a stress fracture of your tibia on the skier. <laughs> no, that would be. And if you do, you have way more issues to deal. Something's with. Something's going on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and so it's like you said, it's freedom. The rev limiter is gone. You get to work now. And what I found is it builds off what you said earlier about it's really hard to go to the well in a really nasty workout and then get up for it again. Mm. I found that that holds true for me in each individual discipline. So, for mm. example, earlier this week, I did 10 by 3 minutes on the treadmill. <laughs> Shocker, like real creative workout. And then I hopped off and I did a, t- a 2K time trial on the rower. That's a miserable test. Terrible. But you know what I was ready to do the next day? Was run. I didn't want to think about the rower. I was not ready to get back on the rower because my mind had a specific detachment from that machine. But I could run the next day and I could skier and I could fan bike. And so you almost have multiple buckets of toughness that you can you can sprinkle your big intensities throughout. And that was an eye opener for me. I didn't know about that because I'd never tried it. So I, I read this book uh, on swimming. I forget exactly what it's called. I'll, I'll tell you later but um they did it cited some studies that talked about um like anaerobic development and those change based off of movement specific action so in this study they used like butterfly versus freestyle and they saw the training that didn't correlate to each other it was probably something (laughs) similar when you're switching from machines right it's like you're experiencing it differently based off the movements that you're doing, which I guess makes sense inherently, but like when it's this, this like internal thing, you think it's going to be all the same. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really not. So what you're saying is correct about how long those mentally, like a 2K row, I'm good like twice a year. That's enough. <laughs> That's, I need that much mental recovery for that. Yeah, but if I had done a 2K run time trial after, I'm not wanting to run the next day. Mm-hmm. And I probably don't want to do a quality run for another two to three days. Mm-hmm. But I did a quality run 48 hours later because I was ready. It felt right. So you get to start stacking these things. And with these Olympic triathletes who have an incredible engine. I mean, Christian Blumenfeld is world famous for his capacity, for his engine, his capacity for work, and his capacity to hold a high heart rate for a long time. But we can take the principles of what they do. They can do two to three thresholds in a day two to three times a week. Plus they're doing four to five hour rides. They're doing longer work. It is a lot more like high rocks or OCR or ultra or trail running. So you start looking at, all right, if it works for them, how can I scale it down to me? And that answer was, well, I do two modalities instead of three in a day. That's easy. And then what if I'm, what if I'm preparing for a mountain race? So I have to do my flat intervals because at some point you still need to run well on the flats to be good at an ultra. You need to work fast turnover. But what if I stack a climbing double threshold Mm -hmm. on? What if I finish with a 2,000 foot climb or 10 by 200 foot climb? I'm not taking any impact. My heart rate's not crazy high. How do I feel the next day? The answer is my hips are a little tired. But I'm no more beat up. Mm-hmm. And it starts to, again, open your eyes like, oh, my goodness, there is more room for work to be done here. And the buy-in of the second workout is so much less 
than adding a standalone quality session later in the week. And you enter it at a de depleted state slightly. And so you have to do less work to get into that like money zone of the workout anyway. And that's a mental relief as opposed to doing something like, I don't know, like three, uh, four by 10 minutes of threshold. That's mentally daunting. But if you're stacking Big. it and you're like, okay, I need to do 15 by 80 seconds. It's like, I can do mm -hmm. 80 seconds. I can't do another 10 minute interval, but I can do 80 seconds for sure. And that's also, you mentioned the climbing. This is where the, like I've shifted a little bit toward the treadmill as well in these mm -hmm. pieces, because it kind of pertains back to being able to like running slower to get the, the response that you're hoping for, even within a workout. I used to not love the treadmill because it does, it, you don't have to mentally think about the pacing of things the way you would have to engage in the race. But if we're not trying to do that, the treadmill works great, you know, and it, it, yeah. it works. It gets you to that place where you want to build fitness. So that, that's another very useful tool with this lowers the impact, pitch it on an incline, lowers the impact. Yeah. Like, how'd you feel after the 10 by yeah. the, yeah, 10 by three, where you're like, fine. Yeah, I mean, I had some calf soreness. Right. And you're just kind of coming back. Yeah. I'm ramping up right now, but to ramp up into 30 minutes of quality work wild. sounds nonsensical, but I'm trying to hit low end of threshold here. That's not that fast. Right. And I did it at 4% incline. Hmm. You know, that's pretty manageable. If I wanted to do a PM session, then I would have put it to 15 or 10%. Yes. And I can still run, but how much impact are you taking at 10 to 15% on, on, on the treadmill? You're just really not. Right. So yeah, it's muscular demands, but that's what you're trying to build up anyway. Mm -hmm. What I found is that these things are like a, they're, they're inertia training as well. You never get out of motion. There's something to that. Big swings lead to big deloads. And we're, we're a proponent mm -hmm. of that. But if you're the type of person that doesn't work for, this keeps you in motion. You just keep pecking away at it. You just keep tapping away, chipping away at it, and you get done with it. But it, it leads to me doing more. Mm -hmm. I realized that if I do a 15-minute ski erg session on Tuesday after my quality run session in the morning, and I feel better that night afterwards, having done something twice, I'm probably more likely to add in 10 extra minutes of sled push the next evening. Mm -hmm. And then maybe some extra core work or some extra mobility work. Once I start doing more, I add more in because you realize how easy it is to fit in or I add more finishers. I run this workout until I start to fatigue or break down or drop pace. And then I call it, it's like, I'm done. But I also know that it is true that I can add on fan bike work with no cost. So I'm going to jump on the fan bike for a little bit. And now I end up doing wall balls in between fan bike intervals. I got another 18 more minutes of quality in with no additional recovery needed. Mm -hmm. So I feel like a lot of time as coaches, we're kind of explaining to people why recovery is important, right? Yes. And this whole conversation is kind of like taking the top off of that a little bit and like opening the doors for people to kind of do a little bit more. I personally haven't experienced this too much yet. And there's been times where I thought I was really kind of pushing it where I was like, okay, I'm going to see how this goes. And if it, if I crash and burn, like I'm, I'm accepting that now with this decision and it didn't mm -hmm. necessarily happen, but yeah, there has to be a point, right? Like where, yeah. And like, do you feel like, would you just re recommend everybody doing this or is there a point where it's like, 
all right, you're the wrong person to do this. <laughs> you're not the type of person who can have unlimited amount of like stuff to do. Well, no, I don't think everyone should do it. I think this is a safish way of doing things, but I think just like any other style of training without decades of people all over the planet doing it, it's new enough that it's not perfected and we don't know yet maybe other people know i don't know yet who is a bad candidate right. i'll say that it doesn't work for people who can only work out once per day <laughs> that's pretty standard and, and yeah i'm sure a lot of people are bound by time that's probably where yeah, absolutely and that's probably where it is for for most people who aren't full-time professionals which is basically nobody mm -hmm. hmm. what i found though is that you can get not all the benefit but a lot of the benefit in combining them into one workout but it's a, that right there starts to require real planning. It gets a little more complicated because you can't do two full workouts. But if you have one 90-minute window in the morning and nothing in the evening, instead of doing a 40-minute workout and a 30-minute workout, maybe you do like, or sorry, instead of a 60-minute workout in the morning and 30 in the evening, maybe you do a, a 40 and a 30 back-to-back. -back. Of threshold. Or a 40 and a 10. Yeah, you back off one and do a little bit more of the other and you do them back-to-back. So you're not going to get 30 to 40 minutes in one workout. You're going to get 60 minutes in one workout, but you're intentionally dialing back and you're pairing them smarter. Mm. So for me, when I combine them, if I have to do one workout, it's going to try to be upper and lower body separated. So I'm finishing up my run with skier if I'm doing it in the same workout or a fan bike. You, I could do my second one on the rower if need be, even though it's very leg dominant, but I'm probably not doing my second one as a running one as well. No impact. I'm, I'm separating out what I'm doing. If I am, it has to be an uphill finisher. So combining it together still has some merit to it because you get to stop the first one before it gets bad and get to the second one and get more total time in. But you have to be very, very intentional with how you stack it and combine it. So this is where I'm going with high rocks training is what you're talking about. Okay. Because I like the volume necessary like stacking it that way and just kind of mixing the modalities of that, you still get to amass this volume that you kind of need where in the past I've just been like slow volume, more like marathon pace, mm -hmm. right? Like we bashed on that and that's kind of what I was doing just so I can get myself to that place. But if I can put the two kind of together, whether it is with rowing, skiing, assault, like running throughout there to get mm -hmm. that energy development, to get that like the threshold and then doing the high rock stuff or inter intermixed with big volumes, that's kind of where I'm seeing high rocks training. Going. I like that. I haven't sp personally gone in that direction yet. You're still, you're still building and high rocks isn't like right there. Right. But I like the idea of doing that. Mm. And I want to get into maybe a few more of these, but I think right now it's time to give specifics because the question that is easy, low hanging right now, if there were a naysayer or even just a critical thinker listening to this, it's you started by saying how important testing is. And now you guys are doing this entire thing. About <laughs> testing. How, like you're just bastardizing this program and there's no way it's effective. Yeah. So I have very specific thoughts on this. And this is what I have to explain to the athletes that I work with, who I implement this with. All of my high rocks athletes are doing this to some extent. Well, most of them, not all. Mo I would say 80% of them are doing double threshold or combined threshold sessions for high rocks right now. I'm sold on it. Mm. But I have to have this conversation with them. And I know you had to have it with yourself and probably with others. So how do you justify doing a blood draw based training system by feel? 
I think it's what I, we touched on very briefly is this workout is dictated by rest periods. And if the repeatability can happen within a certain amount of rest, then you're probably there. And it kind of goes back to just that simplified, simplified way of explaining it. It's the fastest you could go for the longest amount of time. So if you tip beyond it, you're not going to be able to keep going at that pace. And so everything's dictated through rest is kind of how, and, and yeah. I've gone dogs again. I've gone almost completely away. Hold That's on. all right. You do what you gotta do. I'm going to chug my pre-workout here. I don't know if you caught that, but I had a power performally chug here. No, I missed it. And I, I know that you, you can chug. I'm a chugger. You're a chugger. Loud chugger. Loud chugger. I, I ordered the caffeine free version this ah, time. I just got some samples from uh, Driven Nutrition. They're, 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 mm. they're kind of more in the CrossFit space, but they have a stimulant free, like endurance pre-workout. And I'm like, finally, that's yeah. such a good idea. Such a good idea. Yeah. I knew, I knew they had. Because now I can take it whenever I want it. Get that little beta alanine tingle yeah. feel like that's my signaling agent. I'm ready to rock and have no like, all right, now I'm up at midnight reading more double threshold diaries <laughs> online. You can still drink your red lightning or whatever. The all the all the energy drink. Thunder. <laughs> Thunder. My bad, bro. <laughs> Thunder. Get it right. Get it tight. My bad, bro. So I actually had an interesting. Are we back on? Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, we're Just good. That. Um. So I started working with some high-level CrossFitters in to help them with mm -hmm. their running. And they've been a pretty interesting case study in this because their language in terms of effort isn't the same as runners because they're not right. – they, they can't put as much volume in. They're bigger, so the drop-off is different. So pace almost doesn't even make sense to them in terms of yeah. what effort we want to elicit. And generally – if there's someone who's relatively decent at running, you can use these calculators like the V dot situation and be like, all right, your threshold pace is probably around here. So if you need to go on pace, mm -hmm. this is probably it. And I used to do that quite a bit. Be like, run a six minute flat. You should be able to hold that based off of all these other tests that we've done. But now with this hybrid and CrossFit in particular, it's had to go almost exclusively off rate of perceived exertion and helping an athlete really feel where that is. And you mentioned that when we were talking about the temperature piece, like you can feel when you're in that area of that lactic mm -hmm. threshold before you tip over. And when you're not quite there as well, there is a certain feeling that you get. So that comes with practice and rest of, and rate of perceived exertion. So it was very interesting with the, the CrossFitters because they're dialed in, right? They know what that is. I assume you're using a one through 10 RPE, not the true RPE Not the scale. Borg scale. Yeah. One through 10. Because that's like Good. one through twenty, right? The Borg situation. What do you call it? What do you want them to start at? I I think the appropriate is like an eight point five. <laughs> if we're like doing okay. like like that's kind of where I put it. I put nine as like that's more like a VO two max pace, even though the feeling is, is like you a have 10. to intentionally work to get nine. Yes, like the that's what the I the feeling like. might end up being a ten, but like the pace when you start is like a nine. 10 should just be yeah. like mile pace or something like that. I think. Yeah. I think that's close. So like eight, 8.5 feeling, yeah. I would say. Yeah. I call it a solid eight. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to, it's going to leak upwards. And I like being conservative on these to start. And it's almost always yes. prescribed, even though we talked about it before, like kind of moving backwards. That's if you have the, the strips to know where you're at. 
but starting conservative and then working your way faster. So you can mm -hmm. feel the effort change until it's at that point. You're like, okay, this is actually good. Yeah. Or if you start fast, you don't know where that line is and it's hard to kind of yes. come back. So cutting workouts down in the threshold, I found it to be very effective. I love it. And you're right that with a test, if you're trying to hit a precise number, you hit it and you change your effort to stay. But if we go back to what science in theory started this whole thing in the first place, which is if you're between 90 and 98% of lactate threshold, you get the vast majority of the benefit anyways, right. that's a pretty big range. Right. And let, let's talk about like, what do, what do scientists and coaches say your anaerobic or your lactate threshold duration is untrained athletes or swimmers. You've read swimming books. They often talk 30 to 36 minutes of work. Mm. Is, is their threshold or their FTP, whereas runners will say untrained 30 minutes, trained up to 60, sometimes maybe 70 minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if your range safely is 45 to 60 minutes of work, there's some pace range in there as well. Oh, yeah. The difference between a 45-minute race and a 60-minute race will have at least 5 to 10 seconds per mile for a highly trained athlete. And it could be like 15 to 20 seconds per mile pace difference for an untrained athlete. Do you agree with that? I, yeah, absolutely. And I think this, this point is critical to understand. And also one of those things that's kind of harder, harder to grasp, right? Is that there is a range. There's a range. It's like, you don't, you don't need to nail it, which is hard for type A people. It's hard for runner people, but you can kind of float in there and you're going to get that response that we're looking for. So having the yeah. range and, and being okay with the range mentally helps once you, once you've accepted that that's the case and, phys and mm -hmm. physically helps. It does. So if the science and the theory says you have this eight to 10% range of lactate threshold to work with, you can afford to sit at the lower end of that with your fir first few reps and your first even block of training and give yourself room to expand upwards with the work as you get accustomed mm -hmm. to it. And you're still going to get the vast majority of the benefits without any drawbacks whatsoever. Because if you miss low, what do you do? You run the next rep. You go faster. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's what you right. do. You just do the next rep a little faster. This isn't like running race pace work, where if you're training to break two in an 800 and you're running your 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 200 meter repeats at 32 to 34 seconds. Ain't going to happen. You're not doing a ton of work for that to 800 meter dash, but you're not trying to hit that. You can be four seconds slow on these reps and right in your range, which might be a half percent reduction in benefit, like almost imperceptible. And so you can approach this if they're seasoned enough to have accurate paces, mm -hmm. you can give pace ranges for this. Like there, there's a, someone I worked with yesterday, we decided it could be 645. It could be seven. Let's run the first rep for three minutes at seven minutes per mile. Yeah. And that's safe. And when you take that blood draw, it might say three, five instead of four. But if we think three, two to four gives you your range, like you're fine. Right. You're it's in not it. the same between, it's not the same as 32 versus a 29, 200. Yeah. And it's why it's so much better than VO2 max pace stuff, because by that principle of rules, if you don't hit VO2 max pace, you're not eliciting the change in your body that you want. And so now it's almost a failure of a workout. Even if it's not, it feels like it. This, it's like, there's a range and we're going to ease into it. We're going to get a feel for it. And then we're going to run better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's that, that the being able to accept 
that you can start slower and work your way into mm-hmm. it is a, is a huge change in, in mindset and, and like needing to go off. That's why starting on RPE almost is like how I would recommend doing this completely. Yeah. And if it gets faster, great. Or doing it on undulating terrain, right? If you can't, yep. if you can't take it off the watch or not, or just, or just go off heart rate or something like that, even though like yeah, heart rate to the, to the extent of using it as a way to help yourself mentally cue how you're feeling. It's like, okay, at 155 or whatever, I generally feel like this, not necessarily like, oh, I have to be at the heart rate to get the response. Right. As opposed to looking at pace, because that's something that's that's hard as well. Because each day could be different. The pace yeah. doesn't don't necessarily matter. I put it uphill. Put the put uphill. incline to 10%. And now now what's your race pace, guy? <laughs> what, do you, what do you need to hit here? You're a slave to your pace. Now you're not. You're uphill. Go run. The other thing you can do is that is look at it like the pros are using more like 60 to 90 seconds on a lot of their stuff. 90 seconds, I think is pretty common with a lot of these as recovery periods during these bouts because they're hitting precise millimoles. Well, if you're not trying to hit quite as precise, the easiest way, like you said, to control it is to control your rest, drop it down to 40 seconds. Mm-hmm. Now try to hit your pace. If it's too much, we know it was at the higher end of the spectrum. Maybe it was still appropriate, but maybe it wasn't. But being able to hit your rest off 30 to 40 seconds, 45, and still hit that pace means you're at the lower end or middle end of that spectrum, which is certainly safe. Mm-hmm. So it, like you said, it's that built-in cushion. Or start with RPE. No one on the planet can try to run an 8 and accidentally run a 10. <laughs> right. Maybe, I, I shouldn't say that. Maybe there you are people start that are lying to themselves. You can start at a 10. Yeah. If you start at an 8, you're setting yourself up for success. Mm. You could also tell them to run a form. Try to run the fastest you can run while using your easy running form. That's rep one. Hmm. If you're not, if you're new to running, go out for a jog. And then without trying to change how hard you're swinging your arms, run faster, stick right in that range. Chances are you're faster than aerobic threshold at that range Hmm. at your fastest running stride before you start moving to, I'm trying to run fast stride. Hmm. There are a lot of ways you can set this up that will get you in that 40 to 60 minute race pace window. Because that's a big chunk of time. And if you're not dialed in with what that is in terms of pacing, you're not going to know. Like that used to be the thing I would go, oh, something you could hold for 60 minutes. People are like, what? And especially like the hybrid athlete, CrossFit athlete, they're like, well, am I walking? Like, what do you mean? Like 60 60 minutes. Then it's RPE RPE. until you can do a 30 minute time trial. Mm -hmm. And even then it's like, when you get to that point, it's not necessarily like a target you need to get to because you're still getting the response. If you just go off RPE for your entire life. Exactly. Where from here do you take things with your athletes? So we've established we're going to run double thresholds or bigger sessions with finishers. We're starting with RPE. You're getting comfortable with this. Do you tell them to now start looking at heart rate or to start looking at pace? Do you start adding in more metrics or do you keep it like this is what you did last time? You know what that elicited in terms of recovery. We're going to start there and try to go a little faster or we're going to try to add reps. How do you like to progress these workouts? Mm-hmm. Usually in, in duration because we are duration of the interval. Um, that's like, we'll start at 90 seconds, then the two minutes up the rest a little bit. Like, like I've worked with like some kind of rule of thumb. Like usually it's like, let me try to see what it is. Every like minute I'll add like 10 seconds of rest or something like that. Like go from five minutes to yeah. whatever. It, it, again, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily matter, but that's where I'll go. I'll up the duration of the interval. It's um, getting dark in here. What's, go, what's going on? Get some light. You guys are getting a lot of snow out that way. Is that true? On and off. Rain too. Oh, nice. It's weird. We just got some snow today. 
We just got rain and melt. Oh, so mud? Everything's a mess. <laughs> yeah. No trails for me today. No, no, no. Um, and I like to up the duration of the interval because of the races that people are preparing for. It's mm -hmm. in, And if you're not quite first into that, like needing to know what that feels like lo in longer pieces after three minutes, after four minutes, after five minutes, that's really what's going to kind of help with the race specific feeling. You know, mm -hmm. so I still work toward that, helping people understand what it's going to feel like during the race, because that red line yeah. is what's going to really help them save themselves in a, in a hybrid race, especially one hybrids, basically RPE the entire time outside of like the machine, really outside is. of like the machines. And even then you probably should go off RPE. <laughs> yeah. That's, I do like to up the interval and the highest I'll take it for myself is 10. That's about as long as I'll stomach. I've in the past I've done fifteen. Three by ten. My key workout for DECA was four by ten. I was like, if I can do this nice. at a certain pace, like I don't think anyone else is gonna be able to do that. I'm kicking around an idea of doing of trying to do like twenty by three minutes for high rocks. Mm. It sounds it seems miserable, but it'll be a way to get more volume instead of doing like as a key session, not as a progression. Yes. Building to that. It's nice for hybrid. Because in DECA, the average person is running for 90. I mean, the average elite's running about 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. The longest the average person's running is about two to three minutes. Mm -hmm. Right. If you're like on the slower end of average. And for high rocks, the fastest you're running is low threes. And the slowest that the average person who cares enough about their training to do double thresholds or experiment is closer to five right. minutes. Four and a half, yeah. So you have that three to five minute range in what your demands in a race are going to be. And this would be one of those pieces about training for other races that people would say, well, what's the potential downside? I'm only doing intervals. I'm not doing continuous tempo mm -hmm. runs, which is notoriously missing from all these programs. Now the triathletes do a bit more of it. They'll do 2k repeats. They'll do some longer stuff, but the Ingebrigtsen's don't. Marius Bakken doesn't recommend that. The 20, 30, 40 minute tempos, those are gone. For high rocks, for DECA, for hybrid, you don't need that because you're never running for longer than five minutes at a time. I personally, I've never enjoyed them. Like, I just don't find them to be. And like, I do. You like those? Oh, it's a matter I do. Like, but in, in this context, and now how I really justify it to myself, not just like, oh, I don't want to do it, is the wear and tear is way greater to do Correct. a, without having these rest interval pieces built into that, doing a 30 minute continuous, it's more detrimental. And you're probably not going to elicit that response that we're looking for until like the back half of it. So like the first half is just kind of like grunt work to get you to the place where you could have gotten if you just started with faster three minute intervals. Exactly. So I, so I toss it out completely. And that's the piece people forget. A 20 minute tempo has eight minutes of work. Right. And that's where I think it's more race specific for those if you're new to running and you yeah. really just have and you have there i've found there to be benefit especially for like the high rocks athlete in terms of pacing it's like if you like mm -hmm. what you do at minute two is going to affect minute 22 you must understand this go run for 30 minutes um but once that kind of is grasped um then i i i, I will rarely program that and i almost i will almost never do it and now that i know that i have this mindset i'm never gonna do it I'm done. I program that a little. I do five or six mile cutdowns. Yeah. To get that feeling of how can you run the back half if you don't over rev the front half? We're doing a 10K cutdown today. Mm -hmm. Start at eight minutes per mile. We're going to see what we can end at. I like that style. But yeah, the continuous 40 minute tempo, 
I don't program very often anymore. If I want that, go run a trail race. Yeah. Go run a five mile trail race. You're going to get your tempo work in there just fine. And with, you know, treadmill, I mean, that's a miserable workout on a treadmill. What's the longest tempo run you've ever done on a treadmill? 60 minutes. Yeah, same. I've done about 10 mile. I mean, tempo, it wouldn't be a threshold run, but it'd be a tempo yeah, run. Same. And that's, that's tough. But, um, but with super shoes, you know, it might not be as much of a beat down. You know, you can get out there if you need to get that, that feeling and really understand the pacing. Like I would recommend wearing some, like having a tool like that to help the recoverability. Yes. But unless you're training for like a marathon, <laughs> like need, need to prepare your feet or your lower legs or whatever, yeah. or just that pounding on your quads. I don't love it. At this point, I did three by 15 minutes the other day. I did a 15 minute, a 15% incline. Mm-hmm. I'm not running that flat anymore. There's no benefit, mm-hmm. especially, and, and here's the, here's the one of, one of the pieces that I don't hear talked about from the pro groups, probably because that ship sailed years ago for these athletes, but this is a ton of practice at the skill of running. If you run 12 by 400 really hard, you got 12 by 400 meters worth of practice at running a fast stride. Right. Like 18 minutes or something, right? Yeah. On these, you're getting 30 to 40 minutes multiple times per week without taking a lot of damage. And if any of your doubles happen in a run capacity as well, you're just getting a lot of good reps in. And anything on earth you do a lot of, you get better at the act and the motion of doing it. And so I'm getting enough reps in running fat in theory, in this buildup, I was getting it prior to injury and I'm coming back and the injury was related to lifting, not to running. So let's not get all crazy all saying, right. well, you got injured. <laughs> in fact, this is the program I'm doing in order to not get injured mm-hmm. anymore, mm-hmm. but I'm getting enough of that, that if I want to do grindy stuff, I do it uphill. Yeah. I don't need more skill work of hitting the ground. I need engine work. So this is really good for new runners as well to get like four years of quality work in, in a year to get fast in terms of reps yeah. to get that, like to yeah. muscularly develop the speed. And that's one thing where I come to a little bit of, uh, I'm a little conflicted about the pace in which to run these, how we sent like, it, like the range gets you there. But if you're running faster, you are running faster, right? So the muscular yes. piece, and even though like you're not killing yourself running faster, but even if it is like that 10 seconds or whatever, it's still something, but I don't know how much that actually matters. So I'm doing, this is where that X day comes into play. Ah, yes. Which for hybrid athletes and ultra athletes is going to be grindier most likely or, or sim based for your sport. But I use a lot of speed sprinkles in my buildup. I was doing nothing but threshold intervals and speed sprinkles, like short little mechanical speed work Mm -hmm. days. What, what maybe Jack Daniels would have called reps back in the day. Mm, reps, yeah. 20 to, to 40 seconds worth of work. Fast enough to use that next level of stride. And short enough to not take damage. And then long rest in between. Just on speed and form. Just on speed and form. And sometimes it's even a buy-in or just like a finisher to something. Like the other di- not the other day. My last week before my quadricep tendinopathy flared up, I did 30 seconds on, 90 seconds off for 10 rounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not a workout. No, that's like a, like a secondary workout. Yeah, that's like something you do before like an A race. That's five minutes of work. But I was running it at like, I don't know, 2K pace maybe, stride-wise. Mm-hmm. Running it quick. Slower than mile pace, faster than 3K pace, somewhere in there. And then after that, I did my 60-60 on the ski erg. 
So it was like a buy-in to my ski erg work, which was my PM session. But that was a 10-minute workout to start with. Man, that's more like 15 minutes. But whatever it was, it was it was basically my warm-up for the ski erg was a short little speed sprinkle. Just work on the mechanics of running well. It's like extended strides. Striders. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's strides with purpose. Mm-hmm. So there's that piece in there. So the X day is important for race-specific skills, and that can also be uphill sprints, which take care of most of this for most people. Yeah, and again, reduces the impact. Now, that that was a Brad Hudson Reduce. thing. Up, up, uphill strides, striders, sprints. Yeah. Are you strides or striders? Striders, man. Uh, Always been. I never heard – not even in high school. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a regional – It's whatever you heard first. Yeah, it's, it must be – because we said it in high school and in college. Yeah. I'd only heard strides and then I had this uh, coach that said striders and I thought he was a big yeah, dork. This guy's – I listening to a thing he says. Did, uh, I think we – Riker had a, a, a way to define this. So strides is something you do before a race. Striders is something you do after an easy run or something like that. There's like, there's okay. like some, some difference in like when you do like a, pre- like a preparation I, I can one get on board with and, a, and a finisher one. Yeah. I forget. I don't know if I flip-flopped it, but cause I only half listen to Riker. That's, that's generous already with what you need more, to do. More than what most people give him. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he probably thinks you're the best listener in his life. I <laughs> <laughs> get voted best listener in his, uh, he, he probably does like year end superlatives for his friends. Probably. All right, so what are we what are we missing? We can go really deep into this. We can give specifics. I don't know if we want to. What are we missing in what, this cursory approach here of what people are going to want to know before the deep dive occurs? Right. Yeah. So let's we've covered like the perceived exertion. I think is important. So if we're on, so Jack Daniels or eighty twenty, these are these are formulaic. Formulaic. And the, this is, seems to be less so I've, I've, in my, uh, implementation of it, it's not very formulaic. It's, it's predict in terms of, okay. Yeah. Predictable of when you do it, but not formulaic as what you're trying to And hit. what else I'm doing around it. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Cause like, what is it? Daniels? It can be, it, can it be? I mean, it would have to be different than anything we've done because like what, it, like the formula that Daniels has, right. It's like your aerobic stuff, your aerobic, like, in, like lactic threshold should be what? seven or eight percent of your weekly miles oh in terms of work breakdown of work how yes. to surround it and 80 20 same thing 20 percent should be like so like how this relates to all the other stuff you do yes i'm glad you're bringing this because up. that could be something that would that i've essentially thrown out the window because now i'm probably closer to 50 50 you know yeah so to me daniel's maffetone 80, 20, all that stuff is like going to school. Mm-hmm. You're told what to do. You follow it and you do it. And now here you're going off into the real world. <laughs> maybe you're going to work experience. Maybe you're taking a, a, a leap year or whatever, but now this is your time to find you. And that is experiment with this. Start with this, trying to do it as 80, 20. You're probably going to be over right from the start and it's going to change your whole world. Like, whoa, I'm over 80, 20. What happened is this is <laughs> what my teacher said would happen. Right. And then you realize it's not as scary as you thought. And then you start dialing in over the course of weeks and months. How do I feel? What feels good? What doesn't? And this is a plan that is easy to just hold for a long time or easy to tweak almost day by day. There aren't really 
dangers and pitfalls of being a little hands-on with this, I found, and trying to balance, all right, after a row double session, run row, I need two days, but after run ski, I only need 24 to 36 hours. Mm -hmm. Or a salt bike in there kind of splits the difference on how long was each session, each bout. So you're going to find your personal rules as an athlete. I think this is a good like get-to-know-yourself program because you're not following anyone else's rules. You're following perceived exertion. You're limiting your workouts to when your body is ready to be done, and you're doing the next one when you have the life energy and the inspiration to do it. Or you can just set it. I'm doing this Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Boom. Once you figure it out, yeah. once you're like testing it out, be like, this is how I respond. I, I perform best with this sequence. But yeah. that is one thing that's been helpful for me. I've been able to move things around a little bit more as opposed to like the Tuesday, Friday. Right. Cause I know I need two days yeah. at least between these running hard interval sessions to then be able to come back around and safely do it and hit it effectively. And now it's like, if, if life happens or there's a time crunch, I know I can effectively do these workouts with less recovery than what I might have needed before, or I can dose something smaller and then still do something longer a day or two later. So that's actually a good way to put exactly. it. It's like not being super stuck on what, you've read in books or what is supposed to work and just kind of putting it into like more of the art, right? Yeah. This is for people who like to tinker and like to know why and how. Mm -hmm. If we had to make golden rules for this, my first one would be there's no benefit to running faster or harder than you intend to. Within the, within this, Framework of double threshold. Within the framework of double yeah. threshold, on the days you're trying to make it a threshold day, there's no benefit to going above and beyond. Mm -hmm. So th there shouldn't be the temptation to, I must hit blank. That's gone. You get to just work in a manner that will build you rather than a manner that hurts. Because you get more, and you get more cracks at it, right? Like if it's a once a week thing, mm -hmm. it might be want to take it there yeah. more often. But since you know there's something else coming around and you, you might be a little bit physically more tired <laughs> potentially. So you don't have, have to yeah. have the, the, the willingness to go there. This makes these workouts easy to uh, race off of as well. I've found is that you don't have to back off a ton coming into things and it's easy to scale down instead of 10 by three. I just do seven by three mm -hmm. still feel good, but felt like a big reduction, but I still got work in and I, I don't lose fitness in the deload and then the, the recovery afterwards. It's It keeps you ready to race and primed to race. It's not like I did a big workout Wednesday. My buddy wants to do a trail race Saturday. I'm not recovered enough. You're always recovered mm -hmm. enough. And I found that I have like an expectation. My body has an expectation to hit these kind of workouts. So even if I'm phasing into mm -hmm. something like maybe a little bit sharper, right? Like, hitting a couple of VO2 max, like something that is going to be more in that 5k type of feeling that mm -hmm. I won't drop this out and I won't want to. I like every so often I'll feel like I need to get this type of breathing in. I need to get this type of feeling happening to make me feel like kind of at homeostasis more or less. Like if it drops mm -hmm. out, it, it doesn't feel good. And it, this, these workouts, they are, if like you're just starting them, they can be a bit of a gut punch because they're longer and like you're going to be kind of putting into a little bit of discomfort for a long amount of time. 
Mm-hmm. So not dropping them out is very helpful from that perspective as well. Cause like, you know what to expect, you know how to hit them, you know, you can hit them, which is also really big as well. Mm-hmm. It's like knowing that these are hittable is very, is takes like some mental sting out of it. Where if you're doing like, like the scariest workouts to me are two and a half, like one to one work to rest, like two and a half minutes, three minutes of work at like VO two max. I hate those. Like they're just like mentally like very hard to make sure I'm dialed in, but with the threshold, I know they're hittable. Yeah. Cause they're so hittable three to four by a mile at five K pace. Oh, I won't suck. I'm not doing that it. one. That one you prep for like a race. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And then there's a lot of weight on it because it is like a race. Mm-hmm. You're like, Oh my God, I thought I was going to run five twenties. I ran five twenty fives. Like this isn't working. Threshold's not really like that. It's like, okay. Like thing, and, but you can no. see the progress within the training as well if it is progressive. It makes you a relaxed athlete. Yeah. Agreed. Because throughout this, I think it's I think it's more important as a death by a thousand cuts training plan to have some specific days where you work hard. If you're doing a lot of intense intervals and a lot of sims, you don't have to have these days that are like extra versions of that because you know you're ready to go out and work hard. With these, you're always feeling decent. You're always getting lots of volume of of reps in, but I think it's important to hit a time trial from time to time. Hit go hit up a local trail race, do a full sim workout every 2 to 3 weeks, something like that in order to remind yourself of how effective this training is. Mm-hmm. So otherwise you can show up with a little bit of uncertainty beforehand like, did I really race well? Can I race well off this lack of intensity? Cuz it you have intensity, but it's not misery intensity and you start to second guess and then you run well. Yeah. I like, I like that idea. Um, and if the, the time trial or the baseline testing is still like hard and if it's something you don't really want to do, like I found it helpful because you see progress within the workouts themselves. You do. So you're like, it's still working, even though I know, uh, even, even if I don't want to wrap my head around hitting some type of baseline that I might not be completely prepared for you know it's still working either based off of your like the paces or how you're feeling or the volume or the duration whatever it is yeah well before our doubles together i had been doing all uphill threshold work and machine thresholds those are my doubles every time and i did three high rocks simish workouts in the 12 days leading up to the you know short little snippets because i didn't believe the first one Mm-hmm. For, and I talked about it on our episode. I was like, Kirk, I did one and it felt way too good. So I've got to do a tougher one on Thursday because I'm not buying it. I can't trust that workout. And I did the second one. And I was like, it felt all right again. I don't know why I'm able to work at this intensity, but I felt in control there. And I did the third one and I told you, I think I can run six minute to 550 pace on race day and do some work. And we ran faster than that. And I still was able to do some work. Yeah, you're right. Like it wasn't an all-star performance, but it, it exceeded the rate of work I had done in any one of those disciplines throughout that 13 week of running rehab I had did where I did only uphill stuff in, in rower and skier. I worked harder on every single station than I did in training, but I was okay because you had built up a body of work, but I, it didn't, I didn't understand why it was working. I just knew I feel more in control than I thought I would. It's kind of like working on the margins is like the way that I sometimes like to think of it, not being so specific over and over and over. And it's mm-hmm. still, it still works to get you like where you need to go. Yeah. So you might have to have some of those in there initially in this build up to a important race, 
in order to give yourself the mental confidence that this will come together. For sure. For sure. Like, I think that there's definitely a place for it, but you don't, mm -hmm. but training this way is going to help you elevate your fitness and not have the yes. race get in the way of like ultimately getting to where your ceiling should be or beyond what you think you're capable of, because you will continue to get more fit as opposed to just like drilling one specific race thing, which I think in hybrid in OCR, we really can kind of fall into. Yeah. Absolutely. And this can be done anyway. Bikers bike, cyclists cycle, triathletes swim, bike, run. This can be compromised running double thresholds. Yes, it can be totally. standalone. One can be standalone. The other one can be double threshold. They, you can get all your skill component in throughout these workouts if you want to. It's not like you have to do four threshold work of just running a week and then go run OCR. You can have compromised running. That's okay. It just has to be within the confines of thrush. Yes, it could be with a sandbag, right? You can you yeah. can run for two minutes, carry for thirty seconds, do it ten times. Absolutely, you know, short, short rest. All right. Well, we cleared two hours here. Do you have anything else you want to get off your chest, or or do you want to let these people be for a bit, let them breathe? Yeah, let's let them breathe. I think they had enough. I think they've had enough. So I hope this was a appropriate fill in for our boy Kirk. When's he coming back? He comes back the 18th, oh, I soon. believe. And then I leave the 22nd. Mm, so he's probably going to call me up and be like, hey, man, like, what is his, what's his solo episode going to be like, you think? We didn't plan it. We said, listen, we're going to let life dictate what we do. We got to just get used to doing this. And so he said, I trust you to do what you want to do. And I'm going to trust him to do what he wants to do. We have no plan for how this happens. Very mature. You guys, your relationship is like rock solid from the outside. We're in a good place. From the outside, yeah. it seems nice. Well, thank you for coming on here. This was a, it was certainly a change of pace from how these things normally go. This was basically a long form training Tuesday. Mm. They're usually like an which hour. Which we don't do very often. It's like, this is like a blend though. It's like a guest with a, and it's not a Tuesday. So Yeah. It's a training topic in expanded form, which I love, as you know, just talking about training for a long time so this is right in my yeah. wheelhouse the density can be a lot but i uh i also i also enjoy it so thanks for having me this is fun absolutely and if he invites you on it's okay i give you permission okay. to also spend time with him i'll, make, I'll be i'll i'll waffle the way i didn't with you where i was like i'm in count me in clear my schedule what are you doing right now <laughs> i was waiting for you to call let's do it i'm outside we're we're, we're hanging out <laughs> All right. So you have Dallas High Rocks this weekend. Dallas High Rocks this weekend. Um, Any Instagram coverage of that? I think so. I think the typical. I'm going to be tuned in. Dialed in. Uh, were you bashing me or defending me in my lunges at, in Houston? I don't think either. Neither. I Because Graham said something that you and Dylan were chiming in. I know I was getting bashed on the lunges. I had some. I had little shuffle steps. Oh, oh, on the coverage. People were people were starting to spout off the way they do. And I said, to be fair, like Rich knows he's going to receive a lot of eyes on him because he talks about this thing. So he wouldn't intentionally do it. And during our doubles, I shuffled three or four times that I wasn't aware of until I saw Lisa's footage of it afterwards. Oh, did you? So you just, I said, I Maybe he knows he is. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he thinks he's resetting his feet just for balance. You you kind of don't know. I said so. I I don't think he like he's definitely cheating. Yeah, 
but he definitely isn't intending to, and he's going to be surprised when he sees the footage afterwards. I, w- I was, and I was like, I was, I thought I did it like once maybe. And then it was like, every time I would reset my feet, it would kind of happen. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, and then like, and then I thought it was going to be look worse than it did. So when I saw it, I, I was like mortified to watch it. I was like, I cannot believe you'd it. already heard the comments. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, even Kent was like, dude, can't be doing this. And like, uh, so I was like, let me take a look at this. Kent actually showed me then later. And I was like, oh, this isn't terrible. It's the kind of thing that you didn't feel it. Now that you saw it, you'll know never to let that feeling happen again because it feels way less egregious than it looks. Mm -hmm. But it was less egregious than the comments made it seem. You're right, right. Someone was saying it's like, oh, it's like the same as wall ball depth. And I was like, eh, kind of. Because wall ball mm-hmm. death, like, you, you really can't tell if you're not getting called sometimes. But, like, you should be able to tell if, like, your feet are shuffling. So I probably could tell if I was really thinking about it. But I was just, like, trying to reset, trying not to fall over. Well, and you – like, if it were a European and I was watching this or someone I didn't like, I would have been like, come on. Look at the – he keeps doing it. <laughs> but with you, like, you're my boy and and I understood what was happening, which was you guys are weaving through yeah. traffic. You have someone you want to pass, but there's some people outside of you. So – like you can't keep a straight path and you're tired enough that having to shuffle a little to the side it takes you off balance and you're trying to judge your gaps and you're thinking about whether I'm passing or not. And your little feet get a little mind of their own without you having <laughs> like your hand on the wheel. That's the So I didn't see it as cheating. I saw it as unconscious nonsense that can't it, happen. It's a weird thing to race in. Like something is so slow that these lunges – you know, it's just like it was hard to kind of race. And I guess maybe that you just shouldn't race during lunges. I think I was trying to race too much maybe, whereas instead of just like sticking to it. But, yeah, when I reset, I could see a little bit of a shuffle here or there. So I think there's going to be some Instagram coverage. So Graham sh- Graham's on site. Should be – should be, should be he's, he's the best, the best out there. I think it's me. I think Brent is running. Marcus Wallace, the dude at uh, CrossFit 414, represent. Mm-hmm. And – Anas. Anas has been uh, using this methodology as well. The, oh, really? Double threshold. Yeah. Have you guys been chatting? A little bit. Yeah. I, I, I chat, chatted with him last week and uh, he just hasn't put together a good high rocks race yet, but his fitness seems rocks. Like you episoded with him last week or you had No, chat? I just chatted. Just talked. Nice. Yeah. So he should be interested because again, he just hasn't done it uh, – I wonder how well someone could go from because I think his PR is like a one twelve or something like that, and but like his fitness indicates that he's like a sixty flat, <laughs> but like it's hard to. He tell. checks all the boxes. Checks all the boxes. I think I dropped seven to nine minutes from my first to my second. Mm. Like once you crack, you crack, and if you just don't crack the second time, right for sure. I'd, I'd be shocked if he's slower than sixty three, sixty four. That's where you think he would be. I think he could run 59 or 60 and I wouldn't be shocked either. I'd be like, oh, he did it. Nailed it. But I, I'd say 62, 64 right in that range is probably a safe bet for where he, where he can be. And I don't know his metrics like you do. Yeah, it's either that or, or, or 72 again, like that he, he messed something up in the middle. He's, probably, he's not going to run a full race and run 67. I yeah. think Marcus could be around 61. He's pretty fit. And mm. I don't know what Brent's got. Brent's always just tough. You know, It's crazy how quickly the sport accelerated 61 – would have made the world podium earlier. <laughs> right. right. And now he's, you know, didn't make the North American championships. He's, he has a 63. So he's right on that fringe of where those athletes are. 63 was guaranteed podium a year and a half mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. 
It's wild. All right. All right. That's it. We did it. Cool. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.